Restaurant Unstoppable episode 801 with Chef Bill Taby. But I just think I came to work every day and I worked really, really hard. And as soon as I stopped with my task, I immediately went over to someone else and asked if they needed help. I just was really aware of the team. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And Seven Shifts is trusted by over 400,000 restaurant professionals because it gives you the tools you need to streamline labor operations, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable that's the number seven s-h-i-f-t-s dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free Procter and Gamble professional provides a wide range of cleaning and disinfectants for your business needs get the cleaning and disinfecting products you need and the peace of mind you deserve not only does Procter and Gamble professional make you cleaner it also makes you more efficient Dollar professional pot and pan cleans 58 percent more pots and pans than the leading competitor Dollar professional it's clean upgraded Restaurant owners know it can be almost impossible to keep everything up to date, even making adjustments on your menu. And I know it's probably one of the most important marketing tools out there, if not the most important marketing tool. That's why I'm so happy to introduce to you Pop Menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. Pop Menu seriously is the full digital solution for independent restaurant owners. When you invest in Pop Menu, you get a dynamic interactive menu that hooks your customers from the start. And let me tell you, they really do love that review feature. You get a mobile-friendly website, and I cannot stress to you enough how many people miss the importance of a solid website. And you also get marketing and integrations to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. What are you waiting for? As you can see, Pop Menu gives restaurateurs all the tools they need to put the focus back on what matters the most, the people and the food. Trust me, if you are a restaurant owner, you need to check out Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, my listeners get $100 off their first month plus an unchanging lifetime rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today. Just a quick reminder, please support this podcast. You can support our sponsors. You can use the links that are our affiliate links in the show notes. You can share this thing. You can join the network. And one other thing you can do that I don't say often enough, go join uh, the YouTube channel. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, a little shout out to Jared Parisi, who's been crushing it. He's been doing my editing for a few years now. Uh, he's been putting Every one of these episodes on the YouTube channel. So if you want to 
come like see where I am, uh, see my guests, get a kind of an idea, paint that picture of where we are, then be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, today we are talking to Chef Bill Taby, uh, who began early on while working after school at a local butcher shop as a young chef, both at Two Moons in Port Chester, New York, in Wildfire in Greenwich, Connecticut. He quickly advanced from sous chef to executive chef. In the years to follow, he would help to develop, design, and run many successful restaurants in Fairfield County, including Grand, Napa & Co., and his own relish in Norwalk before settling in West. Port and opening La Farm in 2009. In 2012, he partnered with Massimo Tulio to open the Welk in Kawani in 2014, both located in Sagatok, Connecticut. The, the newest addition to the group has been Giuseppe Hall, which opened in 2017. However, it did rebrand in 2020 to Don Mamo, which is where we recorded today's episode. All of these restaurants are guided by Bill's belief in sourcing the best possible ingredients and supporting our local farms and community. I love that. Uh, And since 2009, his restaurant group has evolved from a staff of six to over 80 employees. And this guy is a chef's chefs. He's really leading the way and he helped, he helped mold and transform uh, the Connecticut seacoast as far as the values and what they're doing. Really an honor to make an example of this guy. Uh, and I guess with no further ado, here it is, Chef Bill Taby. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, executive chef and owner of the Welk, Kawa Ni, and Don Mamo, Chef Bill Taby. My man, Bill, are you feeling unstoppable today? <laughs> I never stop. Dude, I cannot never. wait to get into this information or into this conversation. Actually, a special thanks goes out to Kyle and Sarah for the introduction. He had amazing things to say about you. Uh, so I know a little bit about your story, yep. uh, but I. I know it's going to be good. I can't wait to get into it. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Ah, what is our mantra? Man, we have so many of them. But, uh, you know, I think we're always just – we're everyone will say it. We strive for perfection. It's completely unobtainable. But every day is, you know, what did we do wrong yesterday? What can we do better tomorrow? We are a service-first business. Um, we're in a great community. So, you know, I, I want my staff to sort of people walk in the room. We hug them. We love them. We appreciate them. Maybe not for the past uh, 12 months, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. And we're missing that, you I know, know man, which is hard. crazy, but I do love the mentality of constantly growing and constantly being, uh, just a better version of yourself today yep. than you were yesterday. And if you just compete against yourself, it's amazing how the sky's the limit, right? Yep. Unstoppable. Awesome. I love great way to get this thing started. So, um, where does it make sense? Start sharing your story. I know in my mm. research, you worked at a butcher shop. Yeah. Uh, in high school or college? High school. Okay. Is it, does it make sense to go beyond that or further beyond that? Or where does no, it make the sense only, to start? The only thing prior to the butcher shop was me just being a really bad high school student. Oh, so. I, I know what that was yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of starts at that. Yeah, I grew up in a really small town, Patterson, yeah. New York. Okay. Um, you know, one store in the town, which yeah. was our butcher shop, your local grocery butcher shop. Started working there at the age of 14, 15. Uh, I think just to make a little extra money, it, you know, I could walk down from my house. Yep. Uh, and just as soon as I got to work, immediately I realized that uh, when I got involved in something, I put everything into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I played baseball as a kid, so that was always sort of a drive for me. Uh, and then when I started working, I realized even at Patterson Food Center at Jimmy's, you know, I was like the guy that wanted 
everyone around me to be better making the turkey sandwiches or cleaning the chicken bin, you know? Okay. And so at what point did you know that this was going to be your path? Because we're still young at this point. You said 14, 15 young. years yep. old. Very young. Uh, like I said before, you know, high school was, was not for me. Um, I always joke that I probably was like the poster child, the original monkey for ADD. Okay. Uh, you know, I was just, <laughs> I, I, I really struggled with conventional learning, yeah. sitting in a classroom, listening to it, somebody man. tell me mm-hmm. it just reading script. I, I just couldn't do it and yeah. I didn't do it. Um, yeah. so once I've graduated high school and I, I did and I got through it, I, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was, there was really a couple options for me. One was to be like a police officer, which most of my family uh, extended family are living in new york city we have a lot of uh, police officers and cops and detectives on my mother's side or it was something else and i didn't know what the something else was so i graduated high school a good friend of mine at the time uh his uncle had a catering company in armonk called the brown bag of armonk in armonk new york so he said come by you know why don't you just make some extra cash you like food you know they're paying me this was i'm 19 18 years old graduate high school and they're paying me 18 19 bucks an hour 20 bucks an hour for parties that's good Great. Going back in time, right? Yeah, yeah, great. You know, we're sitting, we're you know, we're back in the commissary kitchen, smoking cigarettes, cutting vegetables, like just crazy stuff. Oh, you know, like obviously doesn't happen. No, now what's the, the year? Not to date you, but what's the year? Uh, ninety five. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. So, so nine years before opening your first restaurant, yeah, I believe, right? Um, you said something that kind of stuck out to me and resonated with me because I, I'm like you, was the ADD child, the the person that was never good on script, and I always felt like I was never going to be successful because I couldn't do the script, I couldn't right. memorize things. What is it about this industry that you think helps people like you and I who aren't conventionally intelligent, right? Yep. Aren't um, standardized, right? Yep. Why, why do we excel so much in this industry? I, I think when I found food, when I got out of high school and I found food, the first time I went to go work at Brown Bag, you know, putting aside my deli experience, which was fun, but working at a deli is not really being in the food industry uh, to what I am, you know, relating to a restaurant. So I got into catering and what was so exciting about it was everybody was kind of like me, you mm. know, they just, everyone was a little rugged, uh, you know, we cursed a lot. Mm-hmm. We kind of were just... You fit in. Yeah, we fit, yeah. like yeah. I fit into it and, and it was fun, you know, it just, the rules were different. It was about working hard mm-hmm. and there was a sort of level of perfection that was demanded on us. Yeah. And I really love that and I love, I, I, I would just love being driven because I always try to outperform myself. You said it earlier. So yeah. uh, if I'm challenging myself, nobody else has to challenge me. So once I found food, I realized that my brain started to work. You know, it didn't work in school. It didn't yeah. work when I had to write, you know, write a lit paper. That just didn't work for me when I had to go to biology class. That didn't work. So how did your brain work? Give me an example of like what you think this, you know, like, what is it about how you operate and how a lot of people in this industry operate that makes it work? Yeah, I, I'm a super visual person. Mm. Um, you know, so again, I'm... I, Are you dyslexic? No, I'm not. Okay, no, I am. But there's, no. there's so many people that I come yeah. across in this industry that are, so I was just yeah. curious. No, I'm not. No. Um, I'm just a really visual person. Aesthetic. Yeah. I, des- you know, I design my own restaurants. Yeah. So when I was younger, I always wanted to be able to draw. Mm. You know, I just, I, I, I had visions of being an artist, and but I could never draw. Just mm-hmm. never what was in my head never yeah. got down into my hands and onto yeah, paper. I get that. And again... Um, just these sort of like side hobbies, you know, because I was kind of like a thuggish boy, but, you know, so I'd go home and I'd sketch and, you know, I'd listen to a lot of music and I, I don't play instruments. So like all those things that I thought were really cool younger just never resonated with me talent wise. It yeah. just, it didn't fit. I could, I took guitar lessons. My hands didn't work that way. I tried to paint, didn't work. Yeah. I got into food and all of a sudden it just made sense. So all I, I found a way to be creative, see things, produce, touch them with my hands. Um, 
And it was an even playing field. It really came down to who wanted it more. Yes. It had nothing to do with intelligence. It yeah. was just about passion. And I have a lot of passion. Well, I mean, maybe I think it does have a lot to do with intelligence, but there's just so many different forms of intelligence, right? right? And yes. the, that, being able to tap into that creative element, right? And it sounds like you're creative, visually creative, yep. right? And creative with food. Um, what about social and emotional intelligence? No. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's funny you say it. So I actually uh, had a, a, a similar interview uh, two days ago. I was, yeah. I was talking on a panel. And, you know, I'm the guy that likes to create the party but stands in the corner. Okay. So I, I just – I really struggle with sparking up conversation. I struggle with hanging on to conversations for a long time, large groups. Um, I could, you know, sit back, have a tequila, smoke a cigar, sit with my buddies. But, you know, uh, I'm I just uh, – striking up conversation I struggle with. Well, you're I, doing great right now for what's uh, right. When, when, <laughs> you know, when I'm talking about things I enjoy. Yeah. But after a while, you know, you get tired of talking about the restaurant so, industry. So you say you like creating the party. What is it about creating the party you like? I, I like seeing people gather. I yeah. love the excitement. Mm-hmm. I love um, – Again, I like putting together uh, an environment and seeing people's reaction to it. And mm-hmm. I, I will sit back in the peripheral and just kind of watch this and, you know, take a sense of pride. Uh, it was sort of something that I created, my creati- cre- creativity coming forward. So it just it allows me to see it from sort of my view and stepping back. And, of course, listen, I, if I have friends over to my house, I'm not hiding. Yeah. But, you know, this restaurant experience, as, as soon as I got into it, allowed me to have people, you know, for whatever ego stroke this was to have people fawn over my creativity, understand who I am, live by my rules, everything different than high school was for me. Yeah. And I became sort of center plate. Yeah. And I just knew the harder I pushed, the more people would follow. So, yeah, I, I, and it's weird. It doesn't sound sexy by any means either, but I think there's been this common, common running theme of also just getting approval. Mm-hmm. Like we want approval. People in this industry. And it's, and it's like, it sounds so desperate, yeah, right? Yeah. But I, it, would you say that holds true to you? Like just oh, like making sure people approve of what you're doing for them. Yeah. You could yeah. see, I keep coming back to high school, and, <laughs> you know, and I was just so bad at it yeah. and put my parents through, hell and it just was a, a really sh- a really difficult time for me yeah. uh, I just wasn't a great kid and you know and to be able to get out of that and then recover and find something that I just fell in love with and felt normal and fit in uh, it just became it just drove me so you say get out of that was there were you down a path that did not look right yeah were you doing I, some bad stuff yeah I was I was just you know it, it was your typical bad stuff you know but just stupid things um, yeah like now, now like, where are we in the timeline because you were working 14 to 15 years old you're working at the butchery shop um wh- I mean, I see that you were at Two Moons in Port Chester and yep. you were at the Wildfire in Greenwich, Connecticut. Yep. Where, where is that compared to where, like, was that before or after this, 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 yeah. bar, this bad path you were on? Yeah. So high school was, you know, again, was, was just me with my best friends, but, you know, priority was not school. Mm-hmm. Again, it, we, were, yeah. we would party, we'd have fun, yeah, we'd go right. out, we'd sounds, drive our, you know, all, sounds the, accurate. all the things, <laughs> yeah. right? So, and I just didn't have, I didn't have the gauge to understand how to stop it. Thankfully, I have two boys at home. 16 and 19, one's a freshman at University of Alabama, and I watch them, and they understand that they can have fun, but they also have responsibilities. Mm-hmm. I did not have that switch that said, all right, Bill, time to shut it off. You know, you got to go take care of your responsibilities. Yeah. I just essentially said F you to that and stayed doing what I wanted to do. So when I found food, I went off to culinary school in Baltimore. Okay. I lived, uh, I, after I graduated high school, I went up to Poughkeepsie, New York with some friends, and we rented an apartment. I was working at Brown Bag. Um, 
and the Culinary Institute of America was right around the corner from where I was, and I just made the decision. When I decided, so at working at Brown Bag, the chef there, Joe, had said to me after a couple months of me being there, hey, you know, you're a young guy. What, what do you plan on doing? I said, I really don't know. He said, well, you're, you're good at this. You know, you should look into culinary school. Yes. Make a career of this. Yes. Like you're a natural. So That is huge. Um, if you, right now, if you're listening to this and you have young people working under you um, and they don't know yet that they're good at this, please let them know. Let them know. That has been a turning point for so many different people that yep. I've talked to. Just one person recognizing yep. that you're good at this. Because we, at that age... 18, 19, 17, how self-aware are you? Right. Not at no all. No idea. Right. Yeah. I felt like I'm trying to you, keep up all You that. need to be told right. what you're good at. You need to be, you, you need that for your self-awareness. So please, it's, it's so important. If somebody's good at something, let them know. It can change their life. Literally. Yeah. And coach them, you yeah. know, and mentor them and kind of show them a path because, you know, the world is a really big place and it's just, it's, it's daunting when you're a younger kid, you get out and all of a sudden I remember stepping out of, you know, my parents' house. And being like, oh, you know, I thought I always wanted to do this. Holy shit, I'm on yeah. my own. Like, what is this? So, you know, it's scary. And if you could find a couple mentors along the way, it makes it a little bit easier, right? Because we all want to be comforted and, yeah. and, and help. So, so thank you, Joe, at the brown bag. Yeah, thank you, Joe. <laughs> so he helped you see that you were good at this. Yeah. Then you committed to this path. Yeah. How did your life start to change at this point? Immediately. Yeah. Um, so I started to look where did I want to go to school. I made the decision, which, you know, I still stand by being a great decision, was to not go to Culinary Institute of America because I was up in the area. I had all my friends, and I just felt like everything was going to kind of stay the same. Um, you know, I would, I, I would just be sort of drawn back into just hanging out all the time with people. So yeah. I found a small little school in the back of Food Arts Magazine called the Baltimore International Culinary College. And uh, my father and myself, we jumped in a car, drove down to Baltimore to go check it out. It seemed perfect. You know, small class sizes, six to seven students. You had to sort of try out to get in. Uh, and they had a, a study abroad program in, in, in Ireland. So, and it just seemed totally wacky to me, you know, that great, I could get away a little bit, be close enough. I'm, you know, a car ride away, have the opportunity to, to get out of the country, which I'd never done before. And I felt like this was my way to get away from everything and just start over and be me. And as soon as I got to culinary school, it, everything yeah. sort of took off. I think there's me. another lesson that was subtle on there too, that you, you hear it all the time. You're the average of the five people you surround yourself with and not to say anything bad about the people that you were hanging out with when you were younger, but if, if they don't have ambitions, if they're not going anywhere, you need to remove yourself from that situation and surround yourself with people who are trying to get somewhere right. and you yep. will become the average of those people. Yep. Uh, huge. Um, okay. So Two Moons, Portchester, uh, Wildfire. Was this post-graduation? This is all post-graduation. Okay. Is there any mentor, any key moment, transformative moment during college or abroad that's worth bringing to the surface before we move on? Uh, I just think, you know, in college, again, it's the culinary school um, allowed me to get outside of the conventional learning. And again, it's now all of a sudden I'm in school and I'm yeah. enjoying it yeah. because I'm using my hands and I'm good at it. Yeah. You know, so it became a game for me. I was super competitive. All I wanted to do was put the best stock up in class, make the best sauce, bake the best cookie, whatever it was. Like I was so determined to be the best at it. So it just gave me a canvas and a platform to really sort of turn into the new mate, you okay. know, get out of be in school, get graded. I mean, I was on Dean's list, you know, the two years I was there. And I remember we joke around the other day with my parents that my, the first time I got Dean's list in corner school, my mother called up the local paper and put it in the local paper and had the, had the, you know, the, the clipping sitting on the, on the refrigerator for like seven years that I made, you know, That's Dean's awesome, list man. in college because they could have never dreamed, it, you know, <laughs> it's amazing what happens when you find something that you love, right. And how yeah. that just changes everything, everything. Yeah, so so just to your original question, because I keep getting away from it, I, I graduated culinary school, 
and uh, went into did my internship in New York City with Larry Forgione okay. at American Place. I knew immediately I wanted to be involved in sort of American cuisine, connect with farmers, artisans. Uh, I just kind of caught on early that what I learned immediately was it's really easy to make good food when the ingredients are really good. Mm-hmm. So that was the path I wanted to go. And where uh, did you learn that? Because this is now what two thousand or sorry nineteen ninety seven or seven yeah ninety seven around that time right around the time where. The, the slow move the, the slow food movements really starting to take off on the west coast hadn't quite gotten to the east coast yet right. yep. um, where did you learn that this was the, the fact yeah you had Alice Waters out west yep. and you had Larry Forgione in New York yeah um, I just I just think it was in me you know I, I don't think I learned it as much as again wanting to be really good and I'm trying to figure out how do I stack the deck in my favor yeah so let me go work for you know I went to a in all honesty I went to go trail at Lispana under Grey Coons to do my internship and he handed me a bunch of chives. One of his sous chefs handed me a bunch of chives. They cut the chives. And I just cut chives like I did at the catering company. And the literary guy came over to me and says, you could put your jacket away. It's not going to work. And you talk about mantras. The, you should see the chives cut in our three restaurants. They are perfect because I literally didn't get a trail because I didn't pay enough attention to the chives yeah. and what they were looking for. I chopped chives. They were looking for you know, detail. They were looking for technique. And yeah. I did not understand not, that. This is not the first time I've heard that little trick that if you're looking to see, if you're looking to test somebody, have them chop ch- chives. And the idea of chives are delicate, mm-hmm. right? And you need a really sharp knife to cut a, right. a chive cleanly and beautifully. So if you're, if you're not prepared, then it won't come out good. And it's just an easy way to tell. It's an easy way to tell. Yeah. Yep, that or, you know, make an omelet. Yeah. So, and I, you know, the best is make an omelet and then I've done it to cooks before and then they put tomato in it and cheese and I'm like, I didn't say make, a, you know, a breakfast, make an omelet. I want three eggs, salt, and yeah. butter. That's what I want. So, <laughs> you're not listening. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I went to go work for Larry, Larry Forgione in the city, worked at American Place and Grill Room for about a year, um, got to the point where I just, you know, I finished up my internship, stayed on for a couple more months and just could not afford to live in New York City. No. I mean, I was making $150 a week, working 60 hours a week. So was this like a rude awakening to the realities of the industry? Because you're in culinary Mm -hmm. school at this point, working in butcher shop, it's real work. Uh, But... I feel like once most people get to like the realities of like what it's like to be li- living in New York City, making the wage you're making, trying to get by, like, were you discouraged at no, all? No, it, it didn't hit me yet. Yeah. It was still so much fun. I yeah. had so much to do and so much to learn, and and it just the people I was around were all like me, mm. and we just it just was the greatest experience. What were the biggest lessons you learned at this time? Uh, again, surrounding yourself with with good people, mm-hmm. like minded folks, working hard. Again, when when you're you're in a restaurant like American Place that at the time was considered one of the best restaurants in New York City and one of the best in the country. The demand for excellence is is just beyond anything you could understand. Um, you know, the tension, the, the pace in which they work, uh, the expectation level of you and the people around you. And if you're going down, you're taking other people with you. Yeah. So, you know, I just learned that this is a real it's a real sport. You yeah. know, this is a little different than the catering company where we spend all time. We prep during the day and then we put the party out. We prepare during the day to make it easy at night. Restaurants are not like that, you know, so you do a lot of knife work during the day to cook a lot at night in yeah. the restaurant. So it just it, it really showed me that I got into something real here and can I handle it? And I just never lost the energy for it. I no. just Sorry, go ahead. No, I, it, it just was a drug for me. It yeah. was just intense and I ate it up. So at this point, 
are you, did you know you wanted to open your own restaurant someday? Was that always on the table or how were you living intentionally to get to that point of opening your own place or, or are you not even thinking like this? Yet? No, yeah. So I had such a funny path. So I, I, I left New York city and I came in and I opened up Zagat, which at the time there's nobody's online. So I opened up Zagat and I went to the highest rated restaurant in Westchester County, which was La Pensiere. It was a French restaurant. still is La Pensiere and Rye. It was a 28 in Zagat. The chef Bernard Bourgeois was there. And that's all I wanted to do was work at the best restaurant. So I walked over. I brought in my resume and I said, Chef, you know, I'll, I'd like to work with you. I don't care if you pay me to start, but this is where I want to be. He brought me in. I trailed, worked with him, uh, and ended up landing a spot at, at La Pensiere and Rye. So I'm now working at what people consider the best restaurant in Westchester, Connecticut. I mean, in Westchester, New York. Um, and it just was just an intense experience. So I came from American Place which was mainly uh, you know, either culinary graduates or uh, Spanish guys in the kitchen to a kitchen that only spoke French. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and it didn't make a difference. You know, you, there were people, English-speaking people, but service was in French. Mm-hmm. Screaming and yelling. Every order was in French. Every ticket was read in French. Every curse that was said my way was in <laughs> French. Uh, and you know, not only am I trying to learn a new cuisine and the pace to work at which I am and trying to be a young cook, uh, I'm trying to also understand as the, the tickets are being rung in and they're coming my direction. So it was stressful. I'd go home at night and I'd literally cry into a pillow. You know? And you're still, you still wanted more. I want more. Ooh. I just wanted to keep going. So and what so, was it that you wanted? Like, I mean, it sounds like it was tough. It was horrible, but you kept showing up. What was it about you that made you kept showing up? A failure. I mm. didn't want to fail. I was petrified of failing yeah. because I had fallen in love with this. Um, I didn't have anything else to fall back on. You know, I had said to my parents, I promise this is it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I know I've been a pain in the ass. I know you've given me a million chances. I'm going to make this work. Yeah. Uh, so there was just a lot lying on it. You know, yeah. I had a lot riding on this thing. Like, I needed to make this work, and nothing was going to stop me from doing it. So what did you learn about yourself during this time? Uh, that, again, just like something I've always known, which is if I challenge myself, I'm going to step stubborn, up. Yeah, right? I, yeah, I just, I, yeah, stubborn's a great word. I'm yeah. really, really stubborn. And, you know, I would go home at night, and I would just punch pillows, scream, yell, I, I, you know, you can do this. And then I come to work the next day. Four hours of sleep, go to work the next day. Go to work the (laughs) next day and work 14 hours, you know, and, and just dream about it. And Mm. just as I'm working, I'm thinking about what I can do better. What are you dreaming about? Just how I could do it better. You Mm. know, trying to comprehend everything that was being said to me all the time. Yeah. Just, and you know, a weakness of mine is I don't take notes. I was joking with a cook the other day because I'm, I'm working on a little bit of a cafe concept and I have one of my cooks in the kitchen here, Dom Amo, our sous chef here. He's like a ferocious note taker. So every recipe, everything's written notes. And I'm, I ha- I'm texting him to send me recipes. Yeah. You got to like, turn him on to Mies. It's a new tool that came out of uh, New York City that I'm really interested in following. I think it's going to be a game changer. Cool. It's like Evernote. But great. for, for recipe tracking. for chefs, okay, yeah, great. It's really interesting. M E E Z. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, so uh, La Pantera. I worked at La Pantera for about ten months, and I realized I wanted to get back into American cooking. I kind of absorbed it. That's a sh- you know, I, I wanted to put a year in, but what my plan was at my ten month mark, I was going to give them a month, to, two months notice, <laughs> Chef uh, Bazois. And uh, <laughs> I went to him on a Saturday night. I said, "Hey, Chef, can I talk to you? Uh, you know, I'm thinking about making a move. There's a, an American restaurant." Two Moons, which mm-hmm. was Southwestern at the okay. you know, Southwestern restaurant. I think I'd like to go over and try that cuisine, but um, I'd like to stick it out with you for the next two months. I've told them that you know it's gonna take some time, but I want to make sure you have the right notice. And he literally looked at me and said, "You know, you're a quitter. 
Um, this is completely unacceptable. And Do you agree with that? Tonight's your last night is what he said to me. It was heartbreaking. Do you agree with that? That I'm a quitter? No, no that, with that <laughs> mentality of one. I think one year is like the golden standard. Mm-hmm. Give at least, because you have to keep in mind, like your people are putting their time and energy and they're investing right. in you. Yep. Um, give them at least a year. But at the yep. same time, you got to invest in yourself and you need perspective. Yep. You need different, you need that perspective. So I disagree with this this guy. Yeah. Well, there's a there, there's a great roundabout story to yeah. it, which when we get to La Farm, I'll tell you about. Yeah, keep, keep going. Uh, then. Yeah, so... So, um, you know, and that was, a, that was tough for me. I, I really doubted it. I thought to myself, am I making the right decision? But I stuck with it. So I went off to Two Moons in Port Chester. How long were you there? Start, you? At, at Two Moons or yeah. at uh, Two Moons? Two Moons, just over two years. Okay, wow. Yeah, so it was really weird. So I went into Two Moons with, after working in New York City for a year and with Bernard for, you know, nine, ten months. Uh, I got to Two Moons, and at the time, you know, Bobby Flay was the big chef in New York, so that was part of the reason. It was kind of that Southwestern American cuisine was really was exciting. Was he at Two Moons? No, 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 no. Okay. no just I would watch him on TV. Oh, right, so you. here we are. I have this restaurant, you know, in Portchester, New York, that was very similar to Bolo and Mesa Grill, just that kind of cuisine. I thought it was exciting. So I wanted to go work. There's a great chef there, Dave Thomas, uh, and they accepted me, you know, open arms. I started as a line cook. Shortly after, he promoted me to a sous chef, uh, you know, Probably two months into it or so, and I'm just banging out paellas and you know squiggly papaya sauce and all the <laughs> other things you do in in southwestern restaurants. Everything's bright colors, yeah. and uh, I want to say four or five months into me being there, the owners had approached me one day and said, "We want you to be the chef. Wow. We see that you're the guy driving this place. Um, we're going to let Dave go. We want you to be the chef." And I'm like, "What do you mean? How am I supposed to do this? I barely know how to cook." You just keep doing what you're doing. You keep cooking. We're going to take care of everything. We'll help you with your food ordering. We'll help you with your scheduling. All you have to do is keep coming in and cooking and drive the team because they had noticed the team was kind of following me. Yeah. And the, the work ethic that I was putting forward. Okay. Give us paint the, the, the picture of what you were doing to get the team to follow you. I, I think I was just working. I wasn't, they, I, I'd love to say it was intentional, but I just think I came to work every day and I worked really, really hard. Yeah. And as soon as I stopped with my task, I immediately went over to someone else mm. and asked if they needed help. Mm. I just was really aware of the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, being a sports player as a, as a young kid, it, it, a team is really important to yeah. me. I've coached for many years. Um, still coaching baseball to this day. Yeah. I'm not now. No, no both my boys are out gotcha. of the sport, but I, two teams for about 10 years wow. on top of everything, yeah, else, everything too. else. That's uh, crazy. Best decision of my life. But <laughs> yeah, so, you know, team, team sports are important to me. Teamwork is important to me. So I just, I just, you know, I think it, it was natural to, for me to always have sort of my blinders open and look around and make sure that we were ready for service. I hated the feeling when someone was going down in service. Yeah. I hated it. What I, was your energy like? Uh, probably frantic and anxious like I am. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, it was about getting the job done. I yeah. would come to work. I, you know, I can't stand cooks that will just sort of like slide step through their day and be prepping at the start of service. I'm the guy that wanted to be set at four, mm-hmm. have a cup of coffee quietly, go back, reset my station, look at it and start a new project for tomorrow before but you service can't starts. expect anybody else to do that unless you're doing it yourself. I think that's probably one of the big lessons to take from this is you have to lead in, in order for people to follow. Right. right? Absolutely. Um, you were here for two years. You said just uh, about two years. This yep. is your first leadership role. Correct me yep. if I'm wrong. Yep. Uh, or major like at the top executive chef. Yep. What did you learn about yourself during this time of like tr- transitioning to a leadership role? Yeah. So, so I think the leadership part was really easy for me. Again, going back to sort of my younger days in sports, I was always like captain for the team, yeah. and, you know, that sort of stuff. And I just, it, it just, I naturally fell into it. Um, 
So it, it seemed easy enough. I knew it was by example was going to get me the, the, you know, the best results. So instead of just being a guy that tells people what to do, just do it and yep. then ask them to help you. And yep. that's kind of how I did it. You know, yeah, so I show them how to do it. Right. I'd be yeah. the first guy to, to jump in the dish pit. If I had nothing going on and scrub down some pots, if, if we needed them on the line, like that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. I just like, who gives a shit? You know yeah. what I mean? I could wash pots too. I did it a couple of years ago. I could do it now. So nothing was below me. Um, and I think that resonates with people when you're working with them. Yep. You know, you sort of set an example what the standard is in the kitchen, and they're going to follow. Or if they don't, you know, you let it know that's just not going to work. Yeah. So two moons. Uh, yeah. You know, New York Times came in. I got it very good in the New York Times, which was a big deal. You know, yeah. it's like and a then three-star now you're review. found. Now they follow you where you're going. Right. right? You're now the they know. Yes. Yeah. So who's this guy? Yeah. That's doing you know blue corn crusted sea scallops with papaya seed vinaigrette. <laughs> <laughs> so you spent two years at Two Moons. Uh, why? What was going on in your life where you thought it was time to move on to? Well, Wild they Life? so Wild they Fire. ended up selling the restaurant okay. uh, to Rafael Palomino, who's still over there as Sonora. Uh, which who's another great Spanish chef. Um, I actually, I am curious. Um, you mentioned that your job was just to do the food and they were going to do ordering, costing, all that other stuff. Didn't really work that way. I was going to say, <laughs> no. I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> the first couple of weeks. And then I wanted to learn it. You know? so, so was there an underlying lesson there maybe to yeah. like kind of have your thumb on everything? Everything. Yeah. yeah. It was, you know, in the beginning it was a really good, it gave me a good bumper to, you know, just a support team around me. But immediately I was like, I'm doing my own food. So order. what did you learn not to do? Oh, what did I learn not to do? Uh, you know, honestly, nothing. I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's some, you'll, again, we'll get to a, a couple like what, where I learned not to do. You know, at, at Two Moons, it was, I'm just trying to keep up every okay. day. You know, not only am I working the line and trying to come up with some specials, I'm also trying to lead a team. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't many knots to do there. It yeah. was just kind of head down and work. Very, still very reactionary. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right? just right. I, yeah. And, you know, and again, I'm a young kid. Yeah. So here I am and there's a ton of pressure How old are you at this point? 22. Okay. You know, barely know how to cook. Yeah. And I got what I think is the world on my shoulders because is, you know, we, we forget that nobody really cares that I'm the chef of two moons except for me. Exactly. So, <laughs> but I feel like everybody's watching yeah. me. So I was, you know, I did. And unfortunately at that time I was a screamer. That is a huge lesson right there too, that I don't think people are really like, we are so apprehensive to start things because we're so in our own head about failure or what are people going to think about me? Secret. Nobody gives a fuck about you. (laughs) Just do it. I I had seen a therapist for eight years of my life, and he solved all my problems in one day for $350, where he literally said to me, we were talking about Chowhound and the reviews on Chowhound before Yelp, and he had said to me, um, (laughs) sorry. He, he had said to me, "We're on tube." Yeah, sorry. sorry about keep that. going, keep going. Yeah, we're, we're talking about Chowhound and the, the reviews of one of the restaurants, whatever, and it's making me crazy. And he said, "Bill, honestly, I have no idea what Chowhound is. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares. Whoever's looking at that site, you know, it's a small fraction of people that you'll never come in contact with. What do you care?" And that really opened up everything. I'm like, I'm going crazy over something one I can't control, and two. Who, who gives a shit? I'm not. Go- it's not like my parents are looking at me differently. They don't go on Chowhound. My friends don't go on Chowhound. Who gives a shit? So it, that was a that was a eye opening experience. So Two Moons uh, had sold. They offered me a position at one of their other restaurants, and I decided it was time to go somewhere else. And there was a restaurant that had just opened in Granite. It's called Wildfire, um, and I was very interested in the spot. And I went in and you know had an interview, and they hired me. Rick Jacobson was the chef. Super talented guy. Probably the best chef I've ever worked with. Um, and I went in line cook position, took a lesser position. And he even said to me, you're totally overqualified. I'm like, dude, I'm 23. I'm yeah. barely qualified. Yeah. I'll take whatever you got. 
line cook position, sous chef position, you know, like probably a month into it. And then four or five months into it, the owners came to me, no shit, and said, hey, we want you to be the chef here. We're going to let Rick go. And that one was heartbreaking for me because Rick was a, probably, I don't have many mentors because if you could see how accelerated my yeah. career has been. Yeah. Rick was that one guy that really we'd spend time talking after service. We'd talk about food. He'd explain food to me, um, you know, why we do certain things. He gave me a great position. You know, he saw my ability to produce tasty, um, you know, just well-rounded food that he put me for quite a while in an AM position where I'd come in. I had another cook with me, and we'd, we'd do all the braises, the stocks, the soups, the sauces. So it was just a really great position to learn how to cook. Yeah. And that was getting taken from me now. Uh, did he, it, what did he teach you? I mean, he taught you a lot about how to cook, but what did he teach you about business, if anything? Yeah, I mean, he, you know, I, I think he sort of cemented this lead by example. Rick mm-hmm. was that guy. You know, he'd wear the brightest, shiniest white chef coat, but had no problem rolling up his sleeves and getting it dirty. Yeah. You know, and that was super important. So I saw a guy that I wanted to be when I got older. You know, he kind of played the part. He looked good. His pants were pressed. His jacket's pressed. But he, again, no position was ever below him. He would do whatever he had to do to get service done. And he just really, I started to see food differently with him. Um, where at two moons, you know, we're making big paellas and, you know, it's big food. You know, there's lobster enchiladas and everything's kind of sloppy. You know, it looks nice on a plate, but it's, yeah. it's sloppy. Now I go work with Rick and we're making tomato water and we're poaching halibut and dashi. And, you know, just it's a different level of food, more detail oriented. And all of a sudden I realized like, wow, you know, OK, this is really cool. Like lobster enchiladas taste really good, but. Halibut poached in, you know, in local kombu dashi and, you know, with tomato water and, you know, preserved peppers on top is delicious. You know, yeah, like 19, whatever. Yeah. So um, he just he, he opened up food for me a, a, a different way. You know, it was like working at La Pensiere, but I could understand what he was saying. OK, so <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So you how long were you here? So I'm at Two Moons for four months until they turn me into the chef. Yeah. Uh, and then wildfire. Yeah. At, well, I mean, at wildfire. I'm okay, sorry. I'm, I'm at Two Moons for, for two years. Uh, and then I'm a wildfire for about four or five months, okay. and they tell me I'm going to be the chef. I had to first turned the job down. I said, yeah. I just didn't want to do this. it to your friend. I'm yeah. like, I can't do this. I, I'm having the best time in my life. And they pretty much made it clear that I was taking the job. Yeah, I want to know how he handled that. How Rick did? Yeah. It was really, really weird. I remember that they let him go. I walked in. We went downstairs. He was the man. I was petrified. I felt terrible. I didn't know how to handle it. And he took me into the office and said, listen, you know, I get it. I know you didn't have another opportunity, uh, you know, an, another option. Uh, they explained it to me, what you had said. Like, I was not into this. Um, and he goes, I wish you all the best. You're going to be great at this. Yeah. You know, and That's, here's the truth. It was the last time I've ever talked to him. Uh, yeah. He kind of just disappeared. Um, so it's, you know, wacky experience, but, uh, you know, just lots of lessons, right? Like if you were sitting here right now, what would you say to him? Uh, for, I want to see what, how he was doing, but you yeah. know, tell him that, you know, uh, my life worked out the way it did because of that ownership, putting me in the position they did. Yeah. My life is, is what it is because of those moves. Mm-hmm. But I would have been happy if it was slightly different. You know, yeah. I would have wished I could work with him a little more. Well, if you're listening to this, thank you. Yeah, Rick Jacobson, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank Please. you very much. Yeah. Uh, don't be a stranger. And you said this, this is kind of like what was a pivotal point for you in your career. How did it change your life? Yeah, it, it, so Two Moons was, I mean, I keep saying Two Moons. Wildfire was was real. I mean, you know, big investment in the restaurant. Big investment group owns it. Two two very large restaurant groups own it. Um, and it's in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is an extremely wealthy yeah. town. So, you know, it, it just, 
now the expectation levels through the roof. They know who I am. I already got my very good in the New York Times. Now they're coming out. They can't wait to see me in the New York Times. So, you know, I probably had a menu together for a month, my own menu for a month, and the Times came in. Um, that was a big deal. Got a very good there. Uh, but started to create a relationship now at the Times. They know who I am. I'm a guy to track. And unfortunately, what happened at Wildfire was you had two restaurant groups that didn't see the, the, the concept the same way. Mm. So I was kind of stuck in the middle. See, this is huge. This is a big business lesson, right? Your vision and having the same vision and why having the same vision is so important. Right. So what you're saying is these two restaurant groups had different visions that didn't align. Yep. How did that take us through what the, the result of that yeah, was? Yeah, really tough. One, you know, one of the groups wanted it to be slightly more fine dining. The other one wanted it to be more casual. Mm-hmm. Um, I had put together a postcard at one point. Once I got done dealing with them, I put together a marketing postcard that literally on the front of it, I had got some graphic guy to put it together for me, but it said from foie gras to fried chicken because that was like, this is what you guys want. I don't know what this means. One guy wants blue ribbon and the other guy wants boule. Like, yeah. you know, so we, we worked through it. Um, there was a lot of screaming and yelling in that kitchen. You know, I, I, from you, or from, from me, other, yeah, oh. from me. Um, yeah, again, not prideful moments, but you know, watching a twelve hundred dollar Roboku leave my hands and fly into a into a tile wall in the middle of a Friday service is like, you know, <laughs> that's the pressure of the world was on my shoulders. I can um, imagine. You know, I was young. Uh, I barely knew how to cook. What I had more than everybody else was passion. I did not have the experience, so I would just breathe and live and everything was about food. I mm. would work all day long. I'd go home and I'd open up all my cookbooks and I would just take fruit, just write everything down. And then I'd wake up the next day and I hope that it made some sense when I looked at it. You know, and sometimes I'd be like, why the I'm fucking mixing like you know, again, think of the time we're talking about, but sun-dried tomatoes and peach compote. I'm like, what scratch? You know, like <laughs> <laughs> but you're just you're trying anything. Yeah. So, I, so reflecting back, knowing the, or the man you are today, we're looking back at that past version of yourself. When you say you didn't know anything, what do you know now that you didn't know then? Yeah, well, once you realize, what I realized immediately was it was so important for me to learn ingredients, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going to be a good chef, the first thing you got to do is you have to mentally understand what putting two different things together, the components of those dishes, what they taste like, how, yeah. they, how they work. You could spend all day trying to come up with wacky combinations, yeah. but there's a science behind it, right? So once I really, at, at Wildfire, I had access to really great ingredients. So I started to understand that you know, a, what a really good vinegar is, what a really good olive oil is, what good salt is, yeah. the difference in it, right? It all seems very simple, but when you start working and using uh, just the highest quality product you could find, that opens up new doors. Okay. So I started to really understand cuisine. I started to understand food. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, um, and I know for chefs, it's hard to not think about food because that's your world. But when did you start focusing? When did the transition from the kitchen to the whole big picture start to happen for you. Yeah. Because you your, your lane was the kitchen up to this point, right? Yep. But eventually, I know you went and you helped open Grand, you helped open Napa & Co, and you yep. helped open Relish, and then you owned Relish. You, you Was that a partnership? Yeah. So yep. take us through this transition from I'm in the kitchen and my world is the kitchen to now I have to think about all this other stuff too. Actually, this, this might be a great time to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to kind of unpackage that. What is one of the most overlooked and important marketing tools out there? It's your menu. And honestly, I cannot blame owners for overlooking their menu. It can be super tedious and boring work, let's be honest. Not to mention, it's time-consuming between all the other channels of marketing, i.e. social media, direct mail marketing, and managing your operations and customer relations. Who has the time to dink around with their menu? 
not many people, right? So that's why I'm super excited to introduce to you Pop Menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. From the website to the marketing to the contactless ordering, Pop Menu is the full digital solution for your restaurant. Pop Menu also provides a dynamic mobile-friendly menu that hooks your customers from the start. And this is a really cool tool. Diners have the ability to leave dish reviews, which really helps your menu speak for itself. Beyond these engaging features, Pop Menu provides marketing tools to build long lasting relationships with your guests. For example, you have the power to send automated texts and emails to incentivize new orders or promote new dishes. You can even set up online ordering and delivery direct through Pop Menu. This means less ordering complications and loss commission to third-party apps. We all love that. Frankly speaking, when Pop Menu reached out to me to be a sponsor, I didn't know much about them. We all know my rules that I only promote the tools and services that are recommended on the show. So I had to reach out to my network to get their approval. And I have to tell you, the feedback has been nothing but positive. People really like the menu review feature, the email marketing integration, and the fast and friendly customer support, which cannot be overlooked. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you can lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. All right, we're back, and you were just about to get into kind of that transition from staying in your lane, being in the back of house, executive chef, to now you're starting to open restaurants. You're learning more about that process of opening the big picture. What was that transition like? Yeah. So there was a, there was a sneaky little experience in between, uh, when I had left wildfire, wildfire, the partnership finally broke up at wildfire after two years. Inevitable. If you don't have the same vision, uh, they yeah. opened up, you know, the, one of the groups had put one of their restaurants into the space and I decided to just to not continue on and go find something else. It was a really great chef, in Stanford, Nicola Zangi had opened up his own restaurant in Stanford. It was a big deal. Okay, time stamp this for me. Oh, I'm 25 years old. So, so three years later. Yeah. From uh, the time at Two Moons. So three years at... Um, two, yeah, two years at Two Moons, a year and a half at Two Moons, and then just just about two years at Wildfire. So I'm probably 25 years old. Okay, what you, what's the year? 26. Uh, what's, what am I, 26 years you old? You opened your I'm, first restaurant in 2009. I know. I'm 45 right now. So okay. yeah, when people ask <laughs> 20 me, like, years ago. Yeah, how, how old my parents are, I tell them what year they were born. I have no idea. So like, we'll just say early 2000s. Early 2000s. Got it. Uh, I had met my wife at Wildfire. So then Nicola had opened up this restaurant similar to the La Petite Experience. I wanted to work with Nicola so bad. I'd heard so much about this guy. And I walked in, and he was looking for cooks. He just opened, and he's like, I don't have what you're looking for. I have $12 an hour to chefs. Yeah. I said, Chef, I'll take it. I don't care. I love this. This is the second time you've done this. You've taken a step back to go forward. And I think that's a lesson. Sometimes we have to go back to go forward because when we take a step back, it puts us under a new vertical right. where the ceiling's higher. Yeah. Right? That's right. Uh, keep going. Yeah, I was desperate to learn more you know i was self-taught in every way and i just kept thinking well i might be able to sleep a little more at night if i have someone teaching me during the day Mm -hmm. instead of me going home at night and just like absorbing cookbooks all the time you know like maybe i could sleep six hours (laughs) because i don't have to like read everything so i was just desperate for mentorship you know i just felt so alone like immediately i was a 25 year old kid in charge of 30 year old cooks that's yeah. a, that's why robocoups go flying because <laughs> i need to flex my muscle because mm-hmm. well, why are they listen to me they they know more than i do right so i went to go work with nicola and which was a great experience and while i was working at at zangi uh 
Grand was in the process of opening, and uh, Steve Montello, one of the owners, walked into Zongi one day, comes in, he knew Nicole, and he's like, I heard you got this cook in here. I need to meet this guy. And they essentially offered me the job to open Grand. So, okay. Um, and that was really my first experience opening a restaurant yeah. from sticks, right? Like nothing. The space is being built. We're designing a kitchen. We're designing a concept and a menu. And we went to you know Grand Open with just tremendous fanfare. It was a really interesting concept. It was sort of a nightclub with legitimate food. Okay. They were going for like sort of a hotel lobby vibe. So DJs, the whole deal, but with a real with real food menu. Uh, New York Times came in. Gave me a very good one decibel away from an excellent. The excellence the highest you could get here. Yeah. So that's when it really started. Like, you know, I'm putting out New York Times excellent food in a nightclub. Um, and it was a great experience. Crazy parties, just lots of fun, imagine. you know, and we just worked our tails off. And this was my first real ride. I didn't replace somebody. Uh, it was me from the start. I had the opening menu. This was all about me and my food. It wasn't someone else's idea. And I stayed at Grand, worked there for almost two years, you know, um, and then just it was time to leave. Um, it just everything was kind of weird. I was like, you know, it's a nightclub. This is great. Good experience. But I, I'm not in the nightclub business. So it was time for me to go. And I had an opportunity. Somebody had called me up who had a space in South Norwalk that was going out of business and uh, said, hey, I've heard about you. You know, if you want to partner up, if you could raise some money, you could take my space with me. We'll go 50-50 on this thing, and you drive it. Is this Napa & Co., or is this Relish? this is Relish. Okay. So, great. Go home to my wife and say, you know, have this opportunity. I think if we just scratch the money together, we probably need just short, you know, $75,000, $80,000. We could change the chairs. We could paint the walls. We could do this. We could do that. Uh, We asked everybody we knew for money. We got it, it. Put it in, and I opened up Relish Food & Wine. And how long were you there? Uh, so Relish was open for two and a half years. Okay. So this is two and a half years before La Farm. Yep. So this is around 2005, this is 2007. maybe three years before three, La okay. Farm. Yeah. So like 2006, 2005, yep. around that time. Um, how long was Relish going? So Relish was there for two and a half years. Okay. I woke up one day to a phone call from a good friend of mine in town that says, you might want to come down to Relish. There's a U-Haul truck in the back of it. Oh, my And gosh. my partner stole everything out of okay. the restaurant. See, this is why yeah. I love this podcast. Yeah. No, not, no need to toot my own horn, but because <laughs> of like the stories like this that come up and how to protect other people from yeah. the same things happening. Right. So, I mean, you, at this point, you help open two restaurants. This is the third restaurant. But I haven't helped because no, I haven't opened Nap and Company yet. Okay. Nap okay, and Company is gotcha. after. Which gotcha, is, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, um what do you, what are the big lessons you're learning about early ownership? I mean, you can run kitchens. That's one thing. Opening and running businesses right. is another thing. Who's your partner? Well, yeah. It all comes down to who your partner is. Um, so originally, what was appealing about this partner? It, the space. Okay. The space. You know, I had blinders on. I literally, he had tremendous debt. We had taken on, part of the deal was we'd come in, we'd be 50% partners. We needed a little investment to flip it over. It would be completely my ship to run. Yeah. But we also had to help him through his bankruptcy. Okay. You know, he had a big bankruptcy against them. It what just, do you mean by help him through? Uh, well, the business was going to help pay a portion of it. you're splitting it 50-50, right? Yeah. So the business was going to help pay for a portion of the bankruptcy as well. So it's, so it's really three partners. It's you. Your partner and your partner's debt. And the, his debt. Yeah. Yeah. So, which was fine. We had done the math and we said, you know, okay. So, it's a couple, you know. Was it 33% each way? Uh, I don't remember how we yeah. broke out the bankruptcy, but it really, you know, we it was everything, you know, a $450,000 debt turned into a $50,000 debt when the bankruptcy's all done. So, it's not a lot of money in the in the big scheme of things, right? We threw it as an overhead expense. So, if he has all this debt 
and he's on the verge of bankruptcy or he had gone bankrupt. Yep. How is he getting a loan or how is he getting the space? He had a lease. Oh, so he, he had just it. had the lease. Yeah, this okay. space, the, the, the concept prior to Relish was what went out of business. Okay. So he had the space. He was holding on to the lease because he had value in the lease. That's yeah. the only thing he had. So aside value. from not taking this guy on as a partner, what were the big lessons you learned during this time? Uh, yeah, it, it, that there's other parts when you own restaurants. Now you're worried about the finances. You're mm-hmm. worried about you know trusting people. My wife, thankfully, is our bookkeeper. Has been since Wildfire, and has been you know with all my restaurants. She takes care of our finances, yeah. and it's you know if, to anybody that's looking to open up a restaurant, you have two really key important. You got to know how to cook. Yep. So if you're not a chef. And why you would open a restaurant is crazy to me. But (laughs) anyway, I know some people are passionate, but know how to cook and definitely have somebody you trust taking care of your finances. Yeah. If you do, I have my wife. I've never had to ever worry. No, she an accountant. Was that what she went to school for? She's always done this. Yeah. Yeah, She's always done restaurant finances and bookkeeping. Um, And she's great at it. And she's really, you know, it just to have that in your pocket and never have to worry about it, you know, is just an unbelievable freedom that a restaurateur feels. So she, when we were at Relish, you know, she was dealing with Danny and his debt and everything else. And I'm just pumping away in the kitchen and Mm -hmm. we are easily putting out the best food in Fairfield County, maybe even Connecticut. I mean, we are just, I am cooking with my team at a level and some of the best cooks in Connecticut came out of that kitchen you know, some of the best cooks now came yeah. out of that kitchen. We just pumped. We cooked as hard as we can cook. It was intense. And we loved every second of it. And I was creating my own cuisine. I was I, I was creating my world. Mm-hmm. New York Times came in. I keep bringing back to the Times. How was, how was the culture different from this experience where you're pumping, you're cruising, you're creating your own food from when you're 25 years old throwing RoboCoos against the wall? Yeah, still intense. But what I realized is, you know, throwing RoboCoos against the wall was all on me. That was my my fears, my inexperience. You know, uh, all it was my concerns. I was just I felt like I wasn't doing my job. You know, uh, why am I getting mad at the guy that overblanched the asparagus? It's my job to teach him how to blanch yep. it. But I didn't know how to like hold. I didn't know how to handle all the responsibilities I had. So if something went wrong, I got really mad at the cook. But as I look back, I realize it's my job to make sure they know how to cook it properly. But then I thought about. I don't even know how to cook it. You know, yeah, like yeah, blanching asparagus is easy, but how do you really teach someone how mm-hmm. to do it? Because it's a feel thing. So, and I would get upset at those type of mistakes. Uh, it, probably unnecessary. So, as you get into a kitchen and you start building a team of really good cooks, now yeah. I'm a better cook. I'm yep. a much better cook than I was back at you know at Wildfire and Two Moons. Um, but on top of that, I have much better cooks around me mm-hmm. too. Uh, you know, I am. I was a person that now people wanted to work with. So I'm attracting good talent, talent as well. Yeah. Um, you know, so we just put together a concept at, at Relish that was great. You know, it was it was sort of this American bistro with lots of French flair to it and just beautiful and, you know, just ingredient driven and just delicate. And we just had a blast doing it. Yeah. Two years. Two and a half years. Show up. You haul in the back. Show up. What happened? Restaurant's gone. Gone. He took everything. Copper pipes. Was there a fight that happened the night before? Well, or? So a couple weeks before, he had come to me. Um, we got into a fight on a Friday night because it, the tension was building. He kept going into the safe, taking money. My wife was calling him out, and I tried to stay out of it. I tried to stay in the kitchen, yeah. taking care of the restaurant. I was letting them battle out all this nonsense that they were – the finances. I just don't care about money. Staying in your lane. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, you know what? I got the restaurant. You guys take care of this shit. Yeah. So uh, I guess it was boiling over between the two of them, and he kind of came at me one Friday night in front of everybody in the kitchen, calling me out, something, 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 whatever it was yeah. that I wasn't doing right. And we kind of went at it. 
And, you know, I just realized that this was over. Immediately it was over. Like, you know, it, it, we were past the point of return. Yeah. We worked together for a few weeks. I finally had said to him, you leave or I leave. It's that simple because he was coming into work and just being destructive. Mm -hmm. You know, he's taking all my time away now. Now he's just sitting muttering. He'd show up to work. He would do different things. We tried to keep him home. He didn't even have to come to work. He could have got stayed home. I would have paid him. Yeah. Like we didn't need him. Yeah. We create like, you know, he would do pastries at the restaurant. He'd leave. We'd throw him away. <laughs> like that's kind of how it was. You yeah. know, and all the other cooks are like, just let him make his little chocolate clafoutis or whatever. And dump him <laughs> in the family meal. Um, so it just boiled over and I knew we were past the point and I gave him the option, him or me. And he's a stubborn shit. So he stayed and I was like, I'm out. But he took all the stuff out. So I left about two weeks before. Yeah. I went home. I kind of monitored the restaurant through my team. Yeah. But I stayed out of place because it was just becoming destructive. He just kept coming at me and okay. attacking me. So I, I went home. I didn't come to work for two weeks. I would just call in, talk to people, see what's going on, hoping that this thing would resolve itself, that we were trying to buy him out. Yeah. And I had a buyout in place. And he probably, I just don't think he trusted us that he was going to get his money. He was a really nervous guy that had yeah. a lot of people coming after if him. If you don't for have money. trust in a business relationship, you have nothing. Nothing, right? Yeah. And I just think he had people from all angles coming at him for money. Yeah. And he just saw a quick fix. And Did he, he just liquidate everything? Yeah. He just ended up selling it to another restaurant group somewhere up the coast. Um, we came and took everything. Place was empty. Yeah. I mean, empty. Okay. Reflecting back, um, knowing what you know now about business and partnerships and agreements and things like that, what would you have done differently? <laughs> on paper to protect yourself. Yeah. Uh, not be 50, 50, mm -hmm. uh, ever. I am the majority owner in all my restaurants now. Okay. Uh, Cause when I went to the police station that morning to go tell them that my partner just stole everything, he literally said, if you're 50, 50 partners, it's like a divorce. Yeah. He takes the couch, you get the TV. Yeah. And I said, well, he took everything. So they're like, well, that's for you to figure out through civil court. Okay. You know, this is not a criminal case. He owns the product. He owns yeah. the property. So, yeah, I, I've structured my, my operating agreements and my partnership agreements very differently. So what are the key elements that exist in your partnership agreements now, aside from the, the 51, 50, 49 or whatever yep. that we should think about when making our, our agreements? Yeah, you just, you know, you got to spend more time on them. And, uh, you know, I now I have a good attorney at the time. I think we just had a friend's friend put something yep. together on paper for us. It all seemed very juvenile and easy and sort of like handshake. Yeah. You know, and I go into into detail now. I have a really good attorney, and I make sure that I use his time the right way, and I have him look through everything. You know, and we we forecast to any situation we may have. Let's just make sure it's written clearly. Let's make sure. Give us, give me some examples. I already cut you short. Give me some examples of some of the things that you're forecasting that aren't so obvious. Yeah, I think you just you always have to prepare yourself for someone turning on you. You know, it's it's money is a really evil divide. Has the potential to be an evil divide, yeah. right? So if things aren't working, thankfully. My restaurants right now are doing pretty well, but who's to say if they weren't, if my investors and my partners become different, yeah. you know, like all of a sudden when the pie gets smaller, people want, they still yeah. want their piece. Um, so we just, we, you know, we've spent a lot of time making sure that it's very clear on how things are divided, um, who holds control over decisions, voting rights, those sort of things. And I've, I've made it very clear. And I have the best investors in the world. My partner, Massimo Tulio, is a dream partner now. He's been with me for 10 years. Yeah, I was looking forward to getting into that, the, the, the dynamics of that partnership for yeah. sure. Um, so any big final lessons uh, to take away from Relish before 
Wait, because then you went on to Napa and Co. So we're yeah. not even, we're still I know. a couple years away from the farm. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And the, the Napa and Co. Is, is a whole other great story. Yeah, so the, you know, the whole takeaway from Relish was I did everything the right way. I just got put together with a bad guy. Okay. And that's it. You know, I was passionate. I put out the best food I knew how to put out. I created an environment that the people, our customers loved. It really, there are people still to this day, and I'm not just one or two, lots of people that will tell me relish stories. We're talking 15, 16, 20 years later, yeah. whatever the hell it is, that still remember dishes from yeah. relish. Um, and that, to me, was a great accomplishment. So uh, I think the, the big, you know, and you mentioned it, it's like, it's like a marriage. It's like a 50-50. If it's 50-50, it's like a marriage. It's like a, it's like a divorce. Right. So the lesson that I've pulled from other examples and this example is don't go into business with somebody unless you're willing to marry them. That's it's, right. It, and ideally, it's a... It's a life commitment. You're going to go into business together. You're going to live, you know, happily ever after. You're going to have multiple kids together, aka restaurants. You yep. know, yep. it's a marriage. Those yep. are your babies, and yep. like you have to look. Am I willing to to put my name on a legal document, like a marriage, right, with this person for the rest of my life? Right. And if you can't, without a hesitation, say yes, then find somebody else. Right. Yeah. I just, I, you know, I would think if you're going into partnership with someone, it's important to know whether or not you could get through an argument with them. Mm-hmm. Right. Like put yourself in your work, just imagine your worst situation and you're screaming and yelling at each other. You completely disagree on, on something that's a, a volatile, important situation. And if you think you you're able with this person is rational and you could get through this very difficult time, it's probably the right person. If you doubt that for a second, I would I would stay away because there's going to be a lot of those moments where you just don't agree on how to do something. Yeah. Um, again, you know, I'm stubborn and don't really give anybody else an option. So <laughs> either you do it that way or you learn to work with people. So yeah, I, I learned a lot from the partnership and it kind of changed my approach to who I was doing business with. And it was a great lesson. I learned everything about business at Relish. Okay. So you said there's a whole other story at Napa & Co. Um, try to abbreviate it for us. Yeah, sure. So... Uh, I got out of the, you know, once relish happened, it, it just floored me. I was done. We were in debt. I just I had lawyer fees through the yin yang. He, you know, all over the place. He was, he was claiming my wife had embezzled money. We had the police department come. We moved into Weston. One of the first couple of months we were, we were living in Weston, the police department, the Norwalk police department came to my house with the Weston police department and took all my wife's files with my kids crying on the, on the, on the bed, like crazy shit. And I was just burnt. I'm like, I'm done with this. I can't do this. I'm throwing RoboCoups three years ago now. You know, everything's gone. What? You know, I was yeah. ready to give up. And I said I wasn't doing fine dining, so I wanted to do a concept. I just wanted to do burgers and red wine. I mm-hmm. figured let's be simple. It was way before the burger hit came, and I was like, everyone loves burgers. Everyone loves wine. Burgers and red wine. So I helped somebody open a concept called Burger Bar in Norwalk. And in the time I was doing that, just kind of clearing my head, working in a kitchen by myself, sort of R and D in this concept. Um, it was for someone else. I kept getting a call from a woman who was opening up napping company and she kept saying, Hey, we want to bring you in. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And one Saturday afternoon, she got me in, got a couple glasses of wine in me. And next thing you know, I'm opening up napping company. Um, so, and, and that was, you know, the opening was, this was now the most important restaurant to open in Fairfield County in a very long time. So, you know, I got refocused again. My wife was like, you're crazy. You said you weren't going to do this. I had to do it. And this is where I really started to formulate relationships with local farmers, mm. really getting that's what the, that, and I said to them very clear, food costs cannot be an issue. Who I work with cannot be an issue. You need to figure that stuff out, but I am not compromising anything. You want me to come in here and open this restaurant? It's on my terms, the way I'm going to do it. My staff, my people, my food. Did that go into writing? Yeah. It, okay. Yeah. We had that set in stone. Um, and it was a great restaurant, um, you know, did really well. 
super successful. Um, towards the end, part of my reason was now I realize I want to go do my own thing. I got that itch. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, the concept started to change a little bit. Ownership after about a year and a half was like, Hey, can't we say we're using Rohan duck? Can't we say (laughs) we're doing this? Do we really? And I just knew that I get it. I was like, you know what guys, you hung on here long enough. Yeah. I'm running a 36% food cost. You deserve a 32, you know, like I get it. (laughs) So I've done my job. You did yours and it was time to separate. I went on and I was given an opportunity. I found a small little space. This is now La Farm. So okay. Now- so I'm curious before we move on to La Farm, you said she got a couple of drinks in you and she was able to convince you. Um, I think there might be a lesson here in how to recruit somebody. Right? Yeah. Like, so what did she do that got Just- you off that, that path you were on to kind of re, you know, re, re-energize yourself for this new opportunity that was what you just explained to us. Yeah. I mean, the simple answer was she said yes, but, um, she, she said, she had a plan, you know, she knew that she wanted me to open up this restaurant. So I think she went into it knowing what that would take on her part. This is an extremely successful restaurant tour prior to me being there. Gotcha. She was her own person, um, and well-respected in the industry. Um, and, but she knew she was going to have to concede a little bit to me, you know, at the time, I was just sort of this big ego chef. Like I knew, you know, that I was bringing the people in. Mm-hmm. So uh, she went into this conversation saying, I'm going to have to deal with this guy, that, but I think it's going to be what's right for our restaurant. So she had a plan and I kind of fell for it. You know, I just, I really appreciated her listening to what I wanted to do. And I really, I know it that she had very similar ideas on what the restaurant should be. What was different about this partnership versus the partnership at Relish? Well, the partnership of Relish, that he was just a bad dude. He wasn't a good cook. Yep. He wasn't a passionate guy. He tried to make cheap money all the time. I mean, that dude would have sold, you know, shoes if he could. You know, yeah. <laughs> like it didn't make a difference. You know, like with him, it was about how to just make money. You know, everything was cut in corners, and that's why we didn't let him make decisions in the kitchen. We just kind of kept him in the corner and tried to send him home before service started. Napping Company, she was quality first all the way. She knew, you know, Mary and Charlie knew what good food was, what good wine was, what good service was. This was this was in their DNA. And like I said, it just got expensive for them after a while, you know, having me. Um, and sort of the cost that I ran. Well, this was 2007, 2008. Yeah, probably. So right around the time the economy is starting to. Yeah. So, and it was huge, right? So we would have these, cause you know, it's in downtown Stanford yet at the time you had UBS and you know, Deutsch and uh, all these banks are down there. Uh, and these guys would come in and you know, they'd have 400 hour lunches, you know, I'm talking big steaks and big bottles of wine and just crazy stuff. And then all of a sudden the market crashes. So, you know, things changed a little bit. Now people aren't buying the $300 bottle of mm-hmm. Insignia. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Um, okay, so, so 2009. Yep, yep. We finally made it to, to current time, yep. uh, La Farm. 2009, your first uh, solo project. Or did you have a – did you, Massimo, was he nope. a part of this yet? Nope, Massimo nope. started with me at the Welk. Okay, so take us to, to all these experiences, these, these life experiences have uh, come together at this point. What's going through your mind? Yeah, so – I now am going to be fully in control of everything we do. Um, I'm opening La Farm. It was this tiny little, gross little Italian restaurant that was just so depressed. 36 seats. Uh, very good friends of mine um, helped me build it. Marsha and Andy Glazer, who now own uh, Gray Barns at, at uh, Gray Barns Tavern over in Silvermine. Um, super creative, visual people. And we went in, and I had one of my best friends, his father in law, invested, had given me some money. 
I grabbed some money. My parents had given me some money. We threw some money in and we did this on a shoestring budget, you know, between Andy and his team and us, we built it ourselves and we built this great little kind of funky farmhouse. And I knew everything was relationship driven. That's what it was going to be. I'm doing it on my terms. My wife does the books. I get my best cooks that have worked with me. They all come work with me. I put my best teams in place and we just create a mindset at La Farm that, you know, every day is going to be better than yesterday. We, yes. you know, it, it, it was a, it was a, uh, everything was equal, meaning, you know, cooks swept him up the, the kitchen, dishwashers didn't do it. Waiters and waitresses scrubbed the bathroom floor. It wasn't a busboy job. It was everybody was in on this thing. If you didn't do it, you know, if you weren't able to do every job in, in, you know, capable of doing every job or every task in the restaurant, I didn't want you. I yeah. wanted, yeah, I wanted everyone to be aware and just understand what it took to be great every day. And that was sort of the that was the mentality that we went into it with. So, what was the mindset? Why why start small? Why why were you being intentional about starting small? I think it was money, truthfully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was um, a tentativeness to you know. I didn't want to take on a huge investment. I didn't want to get caught up with too many investors and partners. I wanted to control it exactly. I had just come out of Napping Company that was doing four hundred covers on a Saturday night, and I realized my food didn't translate that way as well as I wanted it to. You know, it's I'd rather do seventy covers than four hundred yeah. any day of the week. Um, so you know, and I've never been about money. You know, for me, it's always been my passion, uh, a representation of me what people think it's never been about how much money I make doing it. Yeah. That's why my wife does the books. But I I love the idea of starting small. I always try to encourage people to to start as small as you can and scale over time and let cash flow and people determine your growth. Um, So it sounds like you kind of had that, that mentality. What I'm curious, I'm also curious about this, this all, all together approach. Like everybody is responsible for everything. How did you put that on paper? How did you make sure that, you know, it was being spread out evenly was there like a, a rotation through tasks no or was I, was just, I was just there every minute of every yeah, day okay. and, and we all worked it was one team Got you it. know we opened up with a tiny team so how do you create a culture like that what's this, the trick to a culture like that? I, I like i said before i just brought my best people in gotcha. the people that i knew that would fall for this and get into it and they understood why we were doing it that way you know that's it just that was what it was yeah. i hand selected a team we came in we were so unified we had such a common goal um you know, there was there was just no mistaking that everybody in that room, kitchen, front, back, was one team that had one goal, which was to be the best at this in the area. It was that simple to us. We just wanted everybody to love us every day. So you did this for three years before you opened your th- – you're still going to this day, correct? Well, the farm is not there anymore. Oh, wait. I, I sold right. the farm, yep. So now it's the Welk. Sorry. Yep. That was 2000. Um, so why did you sell the farm? When was that? Uh, I just kind of outgrew it. You know, I had it for six years. Okay. I outgrew the space. So that was tiny. 2015. Yeah, it was tiny. So I mean, 2000 square foot restaurant. So in 2012, you had the farm and um, the Welk. Got an opportunity to open the Welk. Okay. Yep. So anything worse, any big lessons, life lessons uh, during this three years between 2009 and 2012 that I, we're missing? At farm? Yeah. No, not really. Just, you know, again, it was just... I put a good team together, trusted people. It was just a great space, tons of memories, worked as hard as I've ever worked, uh, but was so proud of it every day, you yeah. know, and, and it just was clean. You know, I didn't have partnership problems. I didn't, you know, my, our biggest issue was we didn't have a walk-in refrigerator. <laughs> you know, we had to buy a lot of food all the time, which, yeah. you know, it was intense work. You it's know? fresh. Yeah, it's fresh every day. You <laughs> yeah. know, I would literally. But there's also a lot of like people encourage others to do that now mm-hmm. is like. 
is the, the the least amount of food you can have on hand, the better because right. you're freeing up cash. Oh, big right? walk-ins are a problem. Yeah. yeah there's a exactly. lot of stuff that could go into a big walk-in. Yeah. I, every morning I would get my car. I'd drive up to one of our local farms and I'd load up mm-hmm. and I'd spend hours in the morning at farms and just pick with them and eat. And, you know, it just the, it was my free time. And then I'd come to work and we'd put food together. And that's what we did, you mm-hmm. know. And the menu was constantly changing and evolving. It never was set in stone. I would literally write something on the menu, you know, it would be like, uh, I don't know, peas, sweetbreads, sherry, whatever. And I would just say, put that on the menu. We wouldn't even have the dish together yet. First order would come in. We'd be cooking it like, oh, what do we want to do? You know, like that's how we cooked. It was just that fun. Yeah. It was so free. Um, and at that point, I now I knew how to cook. Now I understand cuisine. Now I had the relationships to buy good ingredients. Now I had the cooks. So it all just came together for me. So how did the, the Welk bubble up into your life? Yeah, so... Sam Galt, who's a local uh, local Westporter, but also a developer, um, had come in, sent somebody in one of his brokers in one day to La Forme for lunch, came in and said, hey, you know, Sam is redeveloping the Saugatuck area of Westport, which is our uh, sort of over by the train station on the river in Saugatuck. Um, he's redeveloping the area and he wants one of your, you know, he'd love one of your restaurants to be an anchor over there. Um, went to go look at it, kind of fell in love with what they were doing. Sam put together a really good deal for us. And I said, the most important thing to me was, you know, I was now going to need a partner. I was now going to need investors. I had start, I knew Massimo um, just through the industry. He was at Fat Cat Pie Company in Norwalk. And I kind of knew that he wasn't thrilled towards the end of Fat Cat. His partnership there was kind of waning. Um, And I started to just, you know, pay attention to him a little more. I go in the Fat Cat, I'd sit at the bar, I talk to him, see what he was thinking about. And then one day I just approached him and said, I think we'd be really good together. He's a brilliant front of the house mind. Yeah. I don't know anybody that deals with customers better than Massimo. Yeah. Uh, he knows wine as well as anybody I know. And he just, f- he filled voids that I had. I'm not good with the customer. Like I said, I kind of sit in the corner. Yeah. I'm a kitchen guy. Um, I love drinking wine, but I don't pay much attention to it. So I just knew that he he filled all the gaps that I would you know all the all the things that I wasn't good at he was yeah so we formed a partnership we went out and we raised money through investors and we opened the Welk in the- so uh, thirty six seats we had La Farm uh, what was the Welk or what is the Welk seventy four okay so about uh, twice inside the size. yeah inside and then there's pretty big outside area so um, in this partnership uh, he's gonna be he's basically the front of house presence you're the back of house. Uh, anything, I mean, we already kind of covered the, the, how to split things up. Um, anything new about this partnership that was, that, that we can benefit from as far as lessons learned or how to do things right. Yeah. Well, this, this was a good example of me being with a good partner, Yeah, but then also sort of like both of us, you know, putting our flag in the ground, so to speak, and letting each other know where our strengths are, what we're going to deal with, what we're not that, like I said before, having arguments and knowing that we could get through them. Yeah. We had a tremendous amount of respect for each other. What was that process of meshing out strengths and just being real with each other? What, yeah. what, what advice do you have for that? Truthfully, giving Massimo all the credit, it's much harder to deal with me than it is with Massimo. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he really had to, he really had to make more moves than I did. Yeah. I'm only now, honestly, within the last, year understanding that I have to just let other people do things. Yeah. You know, I, I am a big control freak mm-hmm. and I'm learning that that's not always the best way. Yeah. So Massimo really had to come into this environment. You know, again, I was kind of the big name chef and he had to come into this environment and he had to listen to me, you know, and I knew what I wanted and I didn't want anyone to get in my way. Yeah. So really it was, this is what I want. 
this is how we're going to do it. If you have any insight on how to do it that way, say it. If not, don't derail me, you know, and we did that for a little bit and it's now to the point where it's nothing like that. You know, Massimo is his own man and, and, you know, what was Massimo's experience before this? I think, you know, he was, he had some restaurant experience. He was a partial owner in a sort of pizza wine restaurant. Uh, that had a very laissez-faire attitude in service, and I think that made him a little crazy because Massimo is a really good, you know, service-first, <laughs> yeah, uh, high touch, yeah, high yeah. touch restaurant host. And he was in a place where everybody's kind of stoned all the time, and you know, they're just listening to reggae and yeah. like cutting cheese and making pizza. <laughs> and uh, I think you know, he enjoyed the people he was with, but I think it got to a point where he knew it was something new. He needed a little more legitimacy in his life. Got it. Got it. And by teaming up together, we could probably do something yeah. really special, which and, we have. And that's really one of the biggest lessons I've learned and just in, not in business, but in life about creating win-win situations, right. being an opportunity creator for others. That's right. right. Yep. Create, and you were an opportunity for him to get into more of a, a path that was aligned with what he was looking for. Sure. And equally, he gave me the same opportunity for me to be able to trust and open up more restaurants yeah. and have a partner that I know was on my side all the time. I never had to worry about him. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I knew immediately he's just a kind, generous person. And I just knew that I wasn't going to deal with the Danny problems from relish. Mm-hmm. You know, Massimo was not going to come and rob me blind. So, so any new lessons, this is your now fourth or fifth opening of a restaurant, the well, any like curveballs that came at you that you never experienced that you learned things you did the wrong way or, uh, or you would have done differently. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny because when you say that I make mistakes all the time, but I think what's most important for anybody that's in any business, but let me talk about mine because it's what I'm best at yeah. is, um, you know, you just have to be able to evolve and change and accept mistakes and be ready and willing to just immediately fix them. Yeah. So yeah, there were kitchen design layouts we did wrong. I mean, our dining room was laid out wrong. Everything was wrong that we did. This is my first restaurant really building on my own. Yeah. I didn't have anyone helping me design it. All, and I made tons of mistakes, but we would just deal with it. Any you know? like ergonomic things that are just kind of like blatant, like just straight up obvious to you now that weren't obvious to you then that you can help people kind of avoid making the same mistake. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I could go back to kitchen stuff. That's, you know, it all comes down to kitchen. The Welk kitchen, the Welk yeah. is our busiest restaurant in the company with the smallest kitchen. Yeah. You know, it, it just, I, I, I probably could have made it another 100 to 200 square feet bigger. I, we decided that dining room is more important to us, which, mm-hmm. you know. More volume. Yeah, more volume. Yeah. Um, it, I probably would do it a different way now, you know, gotcha. because I realize like, it's tough. July at the Welk is. <laughs> I'm going to have struck a better balance. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough place to work. Gotcha. It's just, it's really busy and there's not a lot of space to plate. So. so another cool lesson too uh, that's kind of been underlying is like the, one of the questions I, I ask people, like when do you know it's time to scale? So you open in 2009, you open your second restaurant in 2012. And for you, I think, and this is a common thread throughout my interviews is if you're doing it right, you the opportunities come to you right you yep. know That's put exactly your nose down do it do put all of your energy into doing the thing you do the best and you create opportunity for yourself right. and that's how you scale yeah. um but I don't want to put words in your mouth either. But no. is that- it's about performance. Yeah. That's it. So, you know, here I we had La Farm, which was a small investment with a single investor. Um and then when we opened the Welk, I had brought in my La Farm investor. Massimo had brought in a, a very close friend of his. So now we had two investors and that really – and they're the best. Yeah. And they were easy and they didn't bother us or deal with us. And we performed. So you open your uh, – because at this point you had La Farm, the Welk, and you open uh, Kawani. Uh, am I saying that correctly? Yeah. I was Kawani, yep. yep. Um, so at this point you have three restaurants for a year and then you sold the farm, La Farm. Right. So um, – and also uh, Kawani was – 
partner of Massimo. Yep. So take us through the dynamics of how this opportunity two years later came into your. <laughs> it's such a stupid story. <laughs> it, Colony is a half a block away from the Welk. It's in this terrible little shopping center with no parking, like <laughs> just brutal. And uh, I used to go, it was a Chinese restaurant takeout place. And I used to go over, they used to do these really great Philly cheesesteak spring rolls. Okay. So every once in a while, a couple times a month, I go over, pre-order like a big bag of them, bring them over to kitchen staff yeah. and we'd be cleaning up, eating these things, drinking beer. That sounds good. And I went over one day and there was a sign on the door that they closed. Oh. And I immediately called up my broker and I said, What's going on with this space? And I go over to Massimo and I said, dude, the Chinese restaurant closed. I want to open a Japanese restaurant. I wanted to do an Asian restaurant. Yeah. Uh, I promise it won't cost a lot. We'll just kind of, we'll use the same kitchen equipment, we'll do everything. And uh, somehow I talked him into it and he you know, fell for the whole, like, it's going to cost us $50,000 to open this place, you know, half a million dollars later yeah, with right. walls and kitchen <laughs> and we're tearing out kitchens. I flew off to Japan for three weeks. Um, and came back with the Kawani Izakaya concept. I wanted to. I didn't want to do a traditional Japanese restaurant because who the hell am I to do that? But I love the food, uh, you know. And I hate to just put it all together, but I just love Asian food, Southeast yeah. Asian, Chinese, yeah. you know, Japanese. It's all very different, mm-hmm. but um, just the the powerful ingredients and the flavors. I just love. I fell in love with Japanese, uh, mainly just the culture. Um, and the attention to detail and the delicacy and how, how just refined the food is. So went off to Japan, took my brother who was also a chef and uh, who had spent time and lived in Thailand and Southeast Asia for a while and talked him into being my opening chef at Kawani. And we flew off with some other friends to Japan and came back and we created, I learned about an izakaya concept in, in Osaka, which really, you know, I didn't, I wasn't very familiar with. And I realized that it's just kind of like the local pubs in, in, you know, in Tokyo and Osaka, like it could be anything. Yeah. So, and that's what I want to do because I don't, I didn't want to, I don't do sushi. Like that's not what I was looking for. I was looking to just do great fun food, my food, but just using miso and soy sauce instead, you know? So regarding like the business element, the building this out, you said, you, Oh, we only do it for 50,000 ended up being half, half a million. You said, yeah. um, what are some of the lessons you can drop on us as far as things you learned the hard way? Yeah. I mean, uh, again, this is just for me, but I'm a super aesthetic person. I said it earlier. So I just, as much as I wanted to do it for, you know, and kind of just replace what needed to be replaced in the restaurant, I couldn't do it. You know, this was a representation of me, this restaurant for colony. So, I, you know, this may not bode well for other people, but, all of a sudden when you have two restaurants in a, in a town um, and now you're opening a third, you can't just sneak it by, you know, you have to do your best version. of yeah. it. So, you know, as we started to develop the concept and go, we realized like, Hey, I can't just throw some like shitty pictures. on the wall. <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, uh, okay. The, the line is made up of walks. I don't need walks. So we're taking, you know, the, the kitchen I thought I was going to keep is no help to us. You yeah. know, so everything got stripped out and rebuilt. Best thing we could have done. No mistake. But I think if, if the lesson is there is, you know, be realistic. Yeah. You know, uh, if it looks like if there's a refrigerator in there in a restaurant that's been there before, there's a good chance it's old and it's not going to work. Uh, yeah. So if you could find a way to either lease equipment or buy new, it's just less headache. There's Where do you go more. to find or lease new or lease or buy new? Like what? Yeah. So we use one company, Trimark United East out of Massachusetts is, is who supplies all of our kitchen and okay. our cleaning supplies. Uh, we've created a great relationship with them. They know what we look for. Uh, we don't necessarily buy used equipment again. I'm just not looking for the headache. I'd yeah. rather just scratch a couple of dollars together and get the warranty <laughs> yeah. and get new equipment and just, you know, there's enough that happens in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, that are unexpected, the last thing I need is a piece of equipment going down on a busy, because they never go down on Tuesday nights. They always go down on Saturdays. Yeah. Refrigerators. So at this point, you own three restaurants. This is the first time you've ever owned multiple units, three restaurants. What what advice do you have for us as far as spreading yourself out or maybe recreating yourself in others? How did you go through that process? Because you never had to do this before. You're always in one restaurant at a time. That's right. So what was that transition like? Yeah, super, really, really hard. Uh, A lot of guilt. You know, I didn't know where I should be. I felt like uh, if I wasn't at La Farm, you know, if I was at Colony, I should be at La Farm. If I was at La Farm, I should be at the Welk. Um, Unfortunately, the, you know, my first chef that kind of, I promoted to take over the La Farm kitchen, you know, I let go shortly into the, into the position. He was my sous chef for a while and did a good job. But as as soon as I gave him the keys, I said to him, you know, he took a Porsche and drove it like a Civic. Like, you know, he didn't do anything with it. He just kind of like, he just, it's like he got lazy and uninspired. Like he was now the guy. So I made that change quickly and I brought in one of my old guys from Napping Company who is one of the best chefs I know. Now a better woodworker, got out of the industry. (laughs) But Eric Ben-Simone, I hired him at La Farm, which was super important. And that gave me the peace of mind to have someone there that's worked with me for a couple years, knew my food, knew me. I knew his food. We cooked the same way. And then it was about making sure I had my brother at Colony. So what's yep. better than that? Yep. You know, super talented cook. Uh, Jeff has Taproot in Bethel now. I mean, but just a super talented guy. Passionate as fuck. But, yeah. you know, and we would have some blowout fights. <laughs> you know, imagine two brothers in a kitchen. But always great. And, yeah. you know, always because we just both wanted to be really good. And then I had a really good team together at the Welk. And, you know, it was about having those chefs, but giving up control to those guys was difficult for me, but what it was, was, you know, I still had food control. Yeah. Um, when you say food control, what do you mean? Ordering? Meaning, well, no, no, I, I stopped doing the ordering okay. because again, I run super high food costs. So yeah. it's better when we put that on. Yeah. Else. <laughs> no, but just, you know, something, it, it couldn't go on the menu without me seeing it, tasting it. I'd like to sort of drive the direction of the food. Yeah. Um, you'd start to get comfortable. You know, it, it didn't take a long time for me to hand it over to my brother immediately and be like, yeah, great. You yeah. Know, whatever you want to do, do just keep me in the loop. I just want to make sure we're staying on. So how do you go through that transition of giving up control? What advice do you have for somebody who might be at one restaurant right now? They have two restaurants they are thinking about a third one. They know they're going to have to give up control somewhere. Yeah. What advice do you have for that? It's person? really hard. Um, you know, my approach and I, I say it all the time, you know, especially when I'm bringing someone else on and I'm giving them a little bit of responsibility or, or promoting people. It might take some time for you to gain my trust. You know, mm-hmm. you just you're. It, it's hard work for the chef giving up the control, but it's on you to stay on top of them. You can't expect. You know, I got a, a a young chef right now, Will, over at the Welk. All this dude wants to do is cook new dishes. Yeah, he's just he's on fire. He's yeah. like, I can't control myself. Okay, you got to learn on how to perfect your dishes first. You yeah. can give me ten dishes, but it, you know, uh, give me one good one instead of ten like half-assed dishes. Um, and not that he's doing that, but he, like, you know, when you're young, you're excited. What I want him to do is really learn how to, how to put together a dish. So my executive chef here, Anthony Costellas, who now oversees all three restaurants, um, it's really been his job now to sort of help our younger chefs really work with them and teaching them how to like create their own cuisine, you mm-hmm. know, because again, you could have a lot of wacky ideas, but. If they're not great dishes, we're not interested in them. What are you doing to cement culture? So one of the things I like to say is behind every great restaurant is a great person, and that business is an extension of who they are, their culture, right? When you're not there all the time, how do you make sure the culture is staying to where you got it originally before moving to focus on another project? Um, 
Well, first, we, you know, our manager of operations, Andrea Dynan, who's been with me since Napping Company. I met Andrea at Napping Company, so a very long time. She is, you know, she started as she came with me to La Farm and was scrubbing the bathroom floors and then helped me open the Welk and was a manager and a waitress and all these other things until finally a couple of years ago, I turned her into manager of operations. She okay. essentially runs the company. Um, she is a big part of our culture. You know, this is a person who has spent every second with me over the last 17 years, 16 years, uh, understanding all my little idiosyncrasies and my demands. And, you know, there's been nights at La Farm I made her cry in the middle of the kitchen. You know, like <laughs> just shit like that. She's been through the war with me and she understands like how to get out of it and why I do it the way I do it. Um, it, the same thing is for our chefs, you know, and, and we just, we have a really great leader group that we have together. So our managers, our chefs, our sous chefs, they sort of, you know, we call the, the leaders. Yeah. We have leader meetings. Um, how and, often? Uh, once every other week. Okay. Yeah. It was a weekly thing for a while. What's we, covered during those times? Oh, what do we talk about? Yeah. Um, just upcoming stuff, but then the reminders, you know, if, Hey, don't remember that the jeans are supposed to be dark, not light, yeah. you know, but constantly reminding, listening to them, their ideas, yep. issues they're having, um, ideas they have, you know, how we can get better. And we, you know, we'll spend an hour, hour and a half together. There's, you know, eight to 10 of us, depending, um, and we just go over everything, you know, it's usually us starting off with things that we're seeing that we want to get better at. And then it's open forum. And then we talk about some fun, creative things we want to do. And yeah. it always ends with some marketing ideas. Um, but it's just a good way to get everyone in the same room. Because when you start getting the managers and the chefs together, you realize like, and they're all very close anyway, because the restaurant proximity, but you start to realize like, hey, that was the same question I was going to ask. Yeah. Now we're solving two problems. Yeah. You know? um, this woman, the director of operations, her name again? Amanda? An- Andrea. Dunn. Andrea. Yep. Andrea. Um, what has she done? What have you seen her do? To take you, your culture, your operations, the way you do things, and put them to paper and standardize them. Yeah. What kind of things have you witnessed her do to to to, to be the director of operations? What impact has she had? Right. Well, first, you just said it. She put it on paper. Okay. Because you, know, you don't she, write things down. I don't. You write don't like any, to take notes. That's a problem when you're trying to scale. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't write anything down. Uh, so yeah, she put it on paper. All of a yeah. sudden, we have you know training guides and training manuals and just uh, just. Uh, do you remember where she was going to, to learn how to do this? What, what her resources were? Same learn. I mean, her, you know, her husband is, is pretty well written, intelligent guy. I, yeah. I, but I also, you know, Andrea again is very similar to me. Yeah. If I give Andrea a task, she wants to figure out how to do it better than everybody else. Yeah. There's just this like edge to her. You yeah. know, she, again, she was a competitive softball player in high school. She just has this like, I want to kill everybody mentality <laughs> and I love it and I yeah. eat it up and, and, um, you know, she takes that. And so when you say, you know, how does she, how does she push forward my, uh, sort of beliefs and how we're going to run our restaurants? You know, she has the same belief. She wants, she probably wants these to be better than I want them. to. Yeah. Be, so you you're know? finding people that have the same, the same values as, as you, they, they have the same culture as you yeah. and you're compounding and in, in coming together to build momentum, right? right? And go yep. in the same direction. Yep. Uh, so we have one more location to cover. Uh, which was originally uh, Jessup Hall, Jessup Hall, yep. which is today uh, Don at Mayo, Memo, Don Memo, yep. Don Memo. Um, so, what was going on in 2017? How did you get this opportunity? Yeah, really wild. So, here's a you know another one. So, Jessup Hall, we're sitting in the building. Jessup Hall, the, the original town hall here in Westport, built in 1907. Beautiful building. It is beautiful. It became available to us. Um, it was brought to my attention that the space was becoming available as a garden shop before, and. Um, I can see this being a garden shop. Good natural light. Yeah, it just you know it was like a really expensive like you know pl- flower pots and planters yeah. and stuff. Um, so 
it was brought to my attention that space becoming available. I was getting a lot of pushback on the farm sale locally. You know, yeah, we have Colony, we have the well. Oh, you sold that? We totally yeah. forgot to cover yeah. the. So the farm was sold to yeah. a good friend of mine, Brian Lewis. Super Back down talented to two chef. locations. Back down to two locations. I kind of outgrew the space at La Farm. Yeah. There's 36 seats. Um, Arik, my chef at the time, was looking to get out of the business. I was not in the mood to find another person to put in there. Yeah. And I just said, you know what? I My buddy Brian was looking for his sort of entry restaurant. Yeah. And we had come up with a deal that worked for both of us. It's and about being someone's opportunity, yeah, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I knew he was looking. We spoke. We came up with a good deal. And um, I sold him the space. And he opened up the cottage, which has been a great success, and it's launched him into a few other restaurants now. So he got his chance, like I did, and I figured that's what was important to me about that space. I, you know, I probably could have sold the farm. I probably could have got more from other people, but I liked what Brian was doing. Brian was me a couple. Did years he maintain prior. the brand, or did he start scratch? No, he. I, the name stayed with me, even okay. though I used it. But yeah. he, yeah, he opened the cottage. Got it, um, got very it, got similar to farm, you know, similar cuisine, really just delicious, well thought out food. Um, but, you know, the farm was me. It was close. It was, I may never use it again. Probably won't, but I, I couldn't imagine seeing yeah, someone else take it. Yeah, I hear you. Um, so 2017, this uh, was a garden or uh, you said a- Like a garden center. Gar- yeah. Yep. Just expensive flower pots. Got it. And uh, yeah, so the space became available. I, like I said, I was getting a little bit of, we want the farm, we want the farm. So I opened up Jessup Hall, which is kind of the, we're, we're in Jessup. This is the Jessup Green. Yeah. Um, the Jessup family essentially were huge philanthropists that created Westport. Got it. A hundred some odd years ago, 200 years ago, whatever it was. And um, so this was the town hall. So we were coming up. So Jessup Hall was the name. I opened up. You know, I, I had. Still brought, says on the on the stone out front, Jessup Hall. When you, the no, original. It, says, it says town hall. Does, oh, town yeah, hall. Town, that's right. But it says like Toho. Oh, that's, it's a little <laughs> broken up. Yeah, it's all broken up. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I put a team together. I, the, I made a big mistake when I opened up Jessup Hall. Okay. Um, I didn't put, I didn't bring my team in. I brought a whole new team in. Oh. I was like, I, I think. I was overconfident. My success was seemed easy. Um, not easy, but it seemed like I kind of was like, oh, I could just do everything. I could figure yeah, it out. Yeah. And, you know, I brought a whole new team in. And I realized right from the beginning it was the biggest mistake. Why? Well, they don't know my food. Mm. Um, they don't know my, you know, sort of this insatiable appetite that I have to just be great. Um, they just – it. I just felt like I was speaking a different language to them. Like we weren't talking the same. I would say lemon vinaigrette and I would get something that was a lemon vinaigrette, but not what I liked. Yeah. So, um, you know, it just, it was tough. It was brutal. I hated every second of it. It was, you know, I lived comfortably at 205 pounds. I was about 180 pounds a couple months into it. I was just, wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating, stressed. The food was fucking terrible. I probably would have gone the other direction and gotten to like 250. If yeah. I, but uh. I, I just, I couldn't, I mean, it was terrible. So, food was terrible. Everything about it was terrible. It just was so not And you guys opened 2017. Uh, it was 2020 that you rebranded at the beginning of COVID-19. Yep. Um, but, you know, one of the things, again, I'll say it again, two things determine growth cash flow and people. And I think this is a perfect example. You don't go to another restaurant, you know, until you have the two or three restaurants, whatever restaurants you have that are busting at the seams with amazing people. And you know that if you don't open another restaurant, they're going to go someplace else. Mm-hmm. So the, the new restaurant becomes the opportunity for others. Right. So That's you started right. from scratch. I started you, from scratch. So, yeah, I mean, I also, at this point in my life and what I think I'm trying to get to is I love the creation of the concept. Mm-hmm. I'm, enjoying being in the kitchen less and less. I've been doing, you know, I'm 45. I started this thing. Like we said, you know, I've been working in restaurants, catering in restaurants since I was 19 years old, full time. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm just my body hurts. You know, I yeah. told you earlier, I'm dealing with a bad back issue. That's my right. knees hurt. My Thanks hips for hurt. making time for us. Yeah, no problem. Um, but you know, it's just the wear and tear is getting to me. I got kids at home. I got a family. I'd like the second part of my life to be a little bit easier than the first. Yeah. Um, so I love. So just the opportunity to create a new space is 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 just again, it's a drug to me. I love yeah. it. This is where I, I I just drive and thrive. So I opened Jess up. I hated it. It took me about a year to get it. You know, I thought, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to change it. We're going to just keep working. And it finally took a regime change in the kitchen to get it to where I wanted. So I made some drastic changes, um, kept most of my staff, but got rid of sort of the top part of the staff and um, spent about a year just in here. said to the other two restaurants, bye guys, I'm here and this is my baby and flipped the whole thing over and really created a cuisine and a, and a restaurant that I was proud of. And then in 2020? 2020, the pandemic hit. Yeah. Uh, we had just opened brunch here. The place was just bonkers on Sunday. Like, Jessup was flying high. Yep. It was so busy. And pandemic hit and, you know, we had pivoted quickly. I had a feeling through the pandemic that this thing was serious. I yeah. closed my restaurants about two weeks before the mandate came through. We flipped okay. to takeout pretty early. Okay. Before we get into the transition to COVID, you mentioned the things you did. You got rid of the top management. What exactly was happening that you did to turn this thing around? What, 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 what if we're, if we are experiencing the same thing, we're not where we want to be. We know yep. we need to make changes. Maybe it's personnel. Like what are the things that you did that cemented this into what it is today? I started bringing it. I, I knew immediately that one, I needed to replace the top. Right. right. I need Why to is cut. that? Well, we just saw things differently. Our food was very different. I didn't like his food. Unaligned. Yeah, I just, we just, uh, he's very successful at what he does. It didn't work here. He's a good chef. Um, I enjoy his food when it wasn't in this building. It just, it didn't translate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just, we needed to make that change. And he knew it and I did. It it wasn't a surprise. You know, we had gotten to the point where we just realized that it wasn't, we weren't compatible or we just see food differently. And I think both of them are good, but just not together. Yeah. So once I was able to make that change and I promoted our sous chef here to that position because he was young and hungry and I said to him, trust me, just you do what I say now and I don't have to, I'm not, we're not compromising ideas. We're just going to go at this. And that's what he did. And he, the, you know, my sous chef at the time was, is, was a brilliant guy. Um, and I just hand him cookbook after cookbook. And I'd be like, listen, if we're going to talk tomorrow, I need you to know exactly what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah, you need the language. I need yeah. the language. Yeah. And that's what he did. And he learned everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just a brilliant kid. He actually doesn't cook anymore. And he's into uh, programs, computers, writes oh, code. Oh, really? Good yeah. for him. Just got himself back into an MIT program. Wow. But he's still a good friend, great friend, and love him to death. Um, yeah, so pandemic hit, and after you know, just finally getting Jess up to where I wanted it, I just all of a sudden it just broke my heart. Colony, when we started pivoting and putting all the food into go containers for Colony, it made sense. You know, Japanese food, Asia, it just travels well. The Welk is just. It's the town's restaurant. Yep. Like people were going to do whatever they can to keep that thing moving, taking their food into go containers. Or whatever. But here, it just felt like it wasn't right. You know, here I am working on my food, and I'm watching it go in these to go containers. And I just finally broke. It was Mother's Day here. It was a brunch. Uh, to, it's a to-go brunch. We're just bonkers busy. We're filling, you know, griddle cakes and whatever else, Benedict and these things. And it just sucks. And it was a rainy day. I remember it. Like, it was yesterday, a rainy day. I walk out of the kitchen. I go walk around Westport in the pouring rain. And I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? I can't do this anymore. I'm like, I, I'm back at it. Now I just got it to where I want, and now it's this. And I came in that Sunday and at the end of service. I said to everybody, you will get paid, but this, this is the last day of service here. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, don't worry. I promise you I'll take care of you, but there's no work right yeah. now. I'm figuring something out. I went home, told my wife, and she's like, what are you going to do? 
And I said, I think I'm going to turn into a Mexican restaurant. I spent many years this in is Mexico. A, this is when COVID is now a thing. It, the two Mother's weeks Day. before, uh, yeah, two weeks before uh, everything, the, the, the forest mandate shut down. Yep. Um, and you, this, these are the thoughts that are going through your mind. But the whole time, I'm thinking, like, how am I getting out of this? Yeah. If this lasts, I can't do this. You know, we have this fresh pasta program here, and I'm watching it go into a box. The whole thing sucks. Yeah. And uh, I just knew that I needed to get to a cuisine and a concept that was new and exciting. I needed to change my mentality. I felt like even though I got Jess up to where I wanted it, it just never felt right to me because yeah. I just think it had the, 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 you know, the ghosts were around. It just, yeah. it just, it was such a stressful, this was such a stressful place for me that I just, it gave me an opportunity. COVID hit and I'm like, fuck, I'm, yeah. I'm pivoting. We're pivoting for everything. No better time, right? No better time. And I shut down on Mother's Day and I set a goal and I said, we're going to reopen on Father's Day. And we made, you know, enough changes to make it look, you know, the tile on the wall and all these things. And we came in and we made some aesthetic changes and I brought, the first thing I did was the best thing I did, which is I brought Anthony Costellas, who was my chef at the Welk for a couple of years, who's one of the most talented cooks in the, in the state and said, I'm firing you from the Welk. You're going to be at Domino's. <laughs> the good news is you're being hired. Yeah. <laughs> and I brought him in and Ian, who was my sous chef at Jessup, was with us just for R&D in the beginning. He knew he was getting his way out of, he was going to work his way out of the kitchen, but he had stayed on to help us with R&D for Domemo. And we spent, from Mother's Day to Father's Day, I put a kitchen team in place, fully paid, and we just went to work on a menu. I redesigned the front with a friend of mine. You know, She helped me. Uh, pull in materials. Yeah. And, so the kitchen's still moving. You're still. Are you doing takeout to there's go? Nothing. We totally shut down. When did you open officially for the first time? Father's Day. Okay. The Father's Day. The the Tuesday after Father's Day. So month, of Mother's, twenty of 20, last Day, year. Yeah. Well, because yeah, Father's Day has happened yet. Yeah. yeah. Right. So we're not even a year old. So you were you the the I'm a, I mean no dining room spaces were being used over the past year until recently. Um, so were you were you. How were you, were you? Were you essentially a ghost kitchen? Where you just created a brand? We were and creating takeout food okay. and outside dining. Okay, so gotcha. outside dining was when we opened in June. Outside dining was available to us, yep. uh, so people were sitting outside, and immediately we knew we had a hit on our hands. So nice. we have a huge patio up yep. front, and it was like, you know, our, we have a fantastic drink menu, and we spent and we had a you know we had from a month six weeks, let's just say five to six weeks to perfect everything. So yep. food to drinks. And, you know, my bar team was creating the cocktail list, my kitchen, we were doing it and we just put together a concept and we opened up and just, it was like a rocket ship. Yeah. Like we were ready yeah. and my best team in place and we were just well oiled. So we, we covered a lot and it's crazy to think it's, it's a uh, 28 minutes to the end of the hour here and I got to get, we got to think about wrapping up and we have the room for the speed round. But uh, one question I ask all my guests before we wrap up the free flowing part of the conversation is how have you transformed? Again, the mission statement, inspire, empower, and transform the industry. How have you transformed in your time as a, you know, in, in the industry? Yeah. Um, you know, experience calms you down a little bit. Uh, I'm a super anxious person. I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years trying to figure out how just to be, uh, lack of better, just more normal. Yeah. You know, I, I bring a lot of anxious energy where I am home, you know, anywhere I am, I'm just an anxious person. Yeah. I'm always thinking I'm always moving. Uh, I'm really trying to sort of just realign priorities. Uh, this, the best thing I've ever done. I'm a big skier. This this past winter, I committed and I made it clear going into the winter that I my goal was 40 days up in Vermont this nice. year. 40 days of skiing. Um, said to my team, that means you guys are kind of taking the reins here. I'm going to step away. And every Monday, Sunday night or Monday, I'd leave for Vermont. I'd stay until Wednesday or Thursday. Rented a place up, and I started in December. Just finished a couple weeks ago. Uh, got up to 50 days. That's awesome. And it really, what it did was it allowed everybody to do it without me. Mm -hmm. 
and I got to really see the the just some of the superstars I have in this company. You know, yeah. not that I didn't know it before, but I, I it's like I felt like again guilt comes over me, right? If I'm not doing it, like I feel like I'm just giving it to somebody yeah. else. Well, they want to do it. Well, when you're up close to it, when you're in it, it's hard to see it. Right, you have to get away from it. You have to literally get away from it to see the big picture. Yeah, um, and that's what happens when you got away and went skiing. You're able to see the big picture. You no know, longer we're in uh, uh, Don Mayo or sorry Don Mamo. Did I get it right? Yeah, yeah. Don Mamo anymore. Yep. When, you're, when you're in it, it's like it's like the same. You can't see the Earth because you're you're on it. You're right. in it. That's right. But yeah. when you step back to the moon, you can see the big picture. See you the can see picture. the whole thing, and yeah. that's what it is. And it's just it. You know, I was in full communication with everybody, and we had a, sort of a system in place where if they needed me, I was always available. But it just you just begin to realize that you know I don't need to like hyper focus and 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 just nitpick about everything. It's okay. Like we're really good at what we do. And they're really good at what they do. And yeah, yeah, maybe I was sort of the the driver and sort of the passion leader. But now that leadership team that I talk about, they don't need me every day, like, you know, slapping them in the ass, telling them, come on, we could be better today. They know that, you know, and I could say it once a week instead of like every day. Yeah. And I do want to give you a chance to talk about Food Rescue USA and something, a cause that you're behind. Um, Again, this mission statement is to inspire and empower and transform the industry. Also, I think we're going to transform the industry by instilling values. So what are your values that are aligned with the Food Rescue USA? I love it. Such a great organization, Food Rescue US. Um, you know, they asked me to be a, a board member a few years ago. What they do is it's a, it's a technology based food rescue company. You could go online, download the app. And what it is, is it's a volunteer service on the app, like Uber Eats, if yeah. you would, um, for rescuing food. So you go mm. on, you become a volunteer, local. 50% of all the food that, that gets produced in America goes to waste. Goes to it's waste. crazy. And this organization has grown exponentially over the last couple of years under some new leadership. Uh, it's always been a great mission and a, and a great organization. It's gotten better at the last yeah. couple of years um, with some leadership changes. And I, I just recommend you go look at it. I just, you know, food is important to me. And when I started to, to understand statistics and the waste and the volume in which we we just we lose, it 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 became frightening. Yeah, and it's to see disgusting. A group of, yeah, and to see a group of people um, that now are sort of in control of this organization who are extremely successful people, you know, that have their priorities are either on par of mine or, or, or higher and they could put this time and energy into seeing yeah. how passionate they are about this. I just, there was no way for me to get out of yeah. it. You, you know, think I, of it this way, like the majority of the damage we're doing to this planet is from food production food, yeah. and 50% of that food that we're producing is going to waste. Right. What if we were just to cut that in half, right? Like what amazing. instant, instant changes would there be if we were just more efficient with the food we're producing? Um, I think, you know, I, I do think that this industry is going to change the world. Yep. I think it's, and it's because we're going to be sharing, you know, people like you, the, the thoughts of leaders like you and showing people that, the, you know, it's more than just making money. It's about having a responsibility, sure. right? To the next right. generation and, yep. and, and sharing information and knowledge. So thank you for advocating for companies like this resources like this yeah i you know i'm heavily involved in the president of the the board of the westport farmers market so yeah. you know it, it 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 get involved it's just more advice to yeah. local entrepreneurs and be like, intentional with the money you're spending where you're putting your money and yeah. who you're giving it to yeah and if you're you know if you're going to start a business know your community and yeah. get involved in the things that are super important to your community it seems like you don't have time i have three restaurants i have two kids i got two dogs i got everything but yeah. and i'm a board member of these yeah. organizations coach Um, a coach it just you know what like if you don't push for it it's you're gonna sit back with regret so my you know anybody that's looking to get involved or start their own business understand your community and see how you could get 
involved in it. Yeah. Um, in any which way, whatever passion you find. It's your obligation. Yeah, it's your obligation, yeah. right? And you realize it's extremely rewarding. Yeah. And you go to sleep at night thinking to yourself, okay, today was really hard, but it, I solved a lot of problems. And you win and, in the long run. All that yeah, stuff comes right. back around. Sure does. Yep. Yeah. Um, awesome stuff. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, Chef Bill. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. We're going to bust out a true speed round. I started this podcast because I have a passion for serving people in the restaurant industry because they have a passion for bringing people together with the ultimate love language, their cooking. But with all that cooking comes great, giant, greasy piles of pots and pans, and we can't waste our valuable time with endless sink changeovers, so we must upgrade to Don Professional Pot and Pan. Don Professional Pot and Pan cleans 58% more pots and pans than the leading competitor, less dish soap, fewer changeovers, and more time doing what we love, bringing people together with the ultimate love language, food. Not to mention, Procter & Gamble Professional also provides a wide range of disinfectants for your business needs. Get the cleaning disinfecting products you need and the peace of mind you deserve. Dom Professional, it's clean, upgraded. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure your profitability and restaurant success. Trusted by over 400 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the tools you need to streamline labor operations, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you already use and trust like toast, turning labor into a competitive advantage for you and your business to get three months absolutely free. Head over to www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S.com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Get on it. We're back, and the first question I have for you is, what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success, your strength? Hmm. <laughs> uh, again, i probably just concerned to, to fail, my, yeah. my absolute fear of failure. What is your biggest weakness? Um, God, sometimes communication, yep. you know, um, just, yeah, I think it probably communication. Like, I'm a, I'm a good leader i'll tell you what i want but i i need to be better at listening yeah what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the the interview process when you're growing your team what qualities are you looking for i want to know if this is the business you want to be in mm. how do yeah. you know that uh i ask you know yep. where what what's your short and long-term goals mm-hmm. if someone says to me well i want to come in and i'm just looking to make some money and then i want to go into real estate well i'm not into you know, if, yeah if and i also don't want to hear people that want to go open their own restaurants it's mm-hmm. always nice like but if someone says to me you know chef for cooks i want to come in i want to work in a good organization and then in a couple of years from now i want to start looking into my own opportunities i'm all for that yeah. and i will get you there exactly and that's um, what we should that's our our job is yep. to to crank out future restaurant yep. tours yep. right and, and if, i've if had people come and, and work for me for six months take every dish we've had yeah. and go open a restaurant so i'm not looking for that either <laughs> but yeah i you know i i'm you you find good people you spend you know 20 minutes with someone you ask them the right questions you know whether or not you yeah have. and if i think the goal is to you know they want to open a restaurant in the back of your mind like maybe if you got what it takes i might be your investor that's what i'm saying you let's know? work together exactly yep. uh well, share one code of 
of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be, a way to act, a core value. Uh, how you treat each other. You know, I spent a lot of times in my younger years screaming and yelling. That doesn't happen in our kitchens. It's yeah. just, you know, there there are hot moments. There's been plenty of Saturday nights where I'm like, let's go. We got to get the fucking food out. Yeah. But I just, I don't want anyone uh, talking down to anybody. Mm-hmm. I want respect in the kitchen. We're all in it together. You know, so it, it's, and it's that sort of, you know, open up the peripheral, understand what's happening around you. What's your biggest challenge today? Uh, accepting this sort of change of life balance that I'm going through yeah. right now. I still, I'm riddled with guilt, you know, like I feel like I need to be at my restaurants, but I also know I should be home if I really want to live yeah. past 50. So yeah. that's, it's hard. It's hard. I hear you. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is a, not necessarily a core value, but it's a, it's a service, a way to go above and beyond what's expected from the guests. Yeah. Being aware. Um, you know, I'm famous to stand in the dining room and I'm talking to somebody, customer, server, whoever may be and i'm like they need something at table nine no i just checked on them no they need something at table nine. i'm telling you right now they're looking up yeah uh so i just want you know be aware attunement to, to, yeah just understand yeah. what's happening around you awareness is super important service is awareness it's simple right mm-hmm. if you understand what's happening with your guests and your customers um you're just you're way ahead of the game i love it if you assume they're okay they're probably not what's one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner hmm Great. Um, I'm going to be honest. I don't read very much. Uh, <laughs> uh, Danny Meyer setting the table might have been one of the only books I've read. But Is there yeah. one lesson that stands out from that book? Uh, I just think his his sort of uh, you know sort of dedication to service. It's really important. You know, you can't get by. You can't be good in this industry. Service is super. Service covers up so many flaws in a restaurant. Like yeah. good service. If the burger's overcooked, the customer's less likely to get upset if the server can deal with it properly. Yeah, it's about how you write the end of the story, I think, yeah, is what he says right. in the book. And it's just like anything can go wrong. And you can choose to let that be the end of the story, or you can take that as an opportunity right. to show them how much you care that it went wrong. Right. You know, yeah, that's it, exactly right. Yeah. I don't want anybody walking out of these out of these doors unhappy. Yeah. You know, you may not have had the we may not have met your expectations. You may not have had the, the evening you were hoping for, but we're going to make it up to you. You know, we're, again, we, we, we want you to be happy. We really appreciate the time you're spending with us. What's one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Oh man. I, you know, restaurants are so different, but, uh, you know, God, you got tough questions. What yeah. restaurant <laughs> not do well enough. Uh, you know, I think take care of themselves. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's, going back to the common theme yep. which is I have some buddies in this business that are going through the same thing I am I think this gen- my generation now right guys that have been in for 20 some odd years we're starting to feel it and yep. we realize what we missed and it was necessary because we wouldn't be here if we didn't but um, start I, doing yoga now yeah right I just think we, you know for many years we ate poorly we drank too much we did all the things and it hit me that uh, I just don't want to do that stuff yeah. anymore but mm-hmm. you got to go through it Exactly. Um, so these next couple of questions are really just about helping good people connect with good people. So name one service you've hired or outsourced to. So this is something that you do or a company you go to to do something for you that you c- couldn't do as well as they do it. So you mm. just outsource it. That's great. Um, I don't know if we use anybody. Who do we use? Shit. Marketing, um, linens, any services like that? Or- sure. I mean, we do all our own social media. Uh, and marketing, um, you know, actually, Toast is a really good company. So we use Toast for our POS systems. That was our next question, which is which one? Which one technology you've implemented? But yeah. we'll get right to it. So yeah. Toast is your Toast. We use Toast and Breadcrumb. Okay. Uh, and the difference between the two, they're both really good POS systems. 
Uh, it seems back at the, the front of the house employees appreciate breadcrumb and its system a little better. What I realize is toast technology is just exponentially better. They've just really pivoted quickly through this pandemic and put together some systems that are really helpful for to-go and take-out QR, mm-hmm. QSR codes. So Toast is – and we've really created a good partnership with them. Yeah, and I think it's it's um, Bbot, which is the, the company that's behind all the QR codes that Toast has outsourced yep. to. I think what, that's one of the things that Toast does so well is they integrate with so many other companies right. yep. that that's why it seems like they're evolving so fast because they play well with others. Yeah, so and they do it quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Breadcrumb and, takes too much time. That's yeah. the problem. And Breadcrumb got its – I mean, they started as Upserve, right? And yep. then uh, that was a data mining software that – they're still around, um, but I think it's just if there's a lesson from Toast, and, and, and Toast isn't paying me to say this, but if you look at the data, it's the most by far recommended POS on mm-hmm. the show. I think it's because of that ability to to collaborate, to play well with others, right. and to integrate. Yeah. Um, and that's what happens when you play well with others. You can create solutions real fast, like when the market needs it. So, uh, again, Toast, number one recommended on the show. If you use the links in the show notes, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 801. So 801, restaurantunstoppable.com slash 801. I'll link to Toast and any other tool or service or anything that was recommended as well as a summary of today's, of today's discussion. If you use the links, you're supporting the show. Thank you in advance. Can't do it without you guys. So this is the last question. It's a doozy. I'm going to get an eye roll. I know I am. <laughs> if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be gone through your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind oh. for the good of humanity and this industry and your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Yeah, uh, Work hard would be number one. One. Just work hard. Um, two, uh, you know, I think it's important to be aware and kind. I think they're the same thing. So... Um, we said before, how do you sort of get yourself involved in your community? There's a sense of kindness yeah. to that and awareness. That's so two. help. And uh, three, uh, live it. You know, yeah. eat well. <laughs> yeah. You know, just, just experience it. Yeah, experience right? life. You and know? I didn't get an eye roll, so thank you very much. No, I actually <laughs> like that. You know, I, I do. I think it's sometimes it's nice to look back and, yeah. and think about it. I do. I look at short frames, you know, and I think to myself, okay, like if today was kind of the last day to do this. Did I did I do enough? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at the point now where I'm like I said I'm at this pivot moment in my life and sort of a transition, um, and I feel good about yeah. where my restaurants are. I feel really really lucky. We just came through a really tough time, yeah. right? We somehow there was a fucking pandemic. Yeah, like, that's <laughs> you weird. survived you're at the other end. <laughs> that's weird. And I've only known you for a couple hours now, but I think you have done a good job for good. what it's worth. Thank you. Um, I appreciate thank it. Thank you for all you've done. Uh, thank you for being a guest today. Uh, we wrap up with every we wrap up every episode by. Uh, well, first, how can we connect with you? If we wanted to come join your team, maybe, yep. or if we want to, so we had a follow up question. What's the best way to connect? Great. So, uh, social media is always good. Instagram at Bill Taibbe, T A I B E. You'll find me. The restaurants all have their own social media accounts as well at the Welk Westport, at Kawani Westport, and at the Amemo Westport. That's usually the best way to do it. Um, we have, you know, good way to connect, and, yep. and and we're always looking for good help. Please, 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 yep. please. Super important. It's harder now than ever to find good help, but. Uh, I always say if we find if, if you know if you've got a great personality and you want to learn and you're passionate we're going to find space for you we yes. will hire you I promise yeah. again and uh, this is episode 801 we'll have all the contact information right in there just go to the show notes and uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out that's actually how I found you yep. Kyle and Sarah called you out so who do you respect and admire in this industry and if they were a guest on my show tomorrow you'd be like I gotta listen to that episode call them out to be a future guest in the show yeah one of my favorite people in the world Dan Cardos okay. uh, Dan has worked with me for many years and now has his own little restaurant empire going on in Stratford, Connecticut, nice. Orin Oak and Orin Oak Birdhouse. 
and just one of the funniest, most creative, passionate, humble, loving people. I mean, you guys would have a fucking blast yes. together. He's brilliant. Dan, check look out. out. I'm coming yeah, after you. Yeah, man. check out Dan Cardos on Instagram. He is just a blast. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, thank you for calling out. I'm coming after you. And just again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to to share your story and to make us all a little bit more unstoppable. Yeah. And there is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. Thanks. Cheers. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast. Special thanks to today's guest, Chef Bill TB. And also shout out to Kyle and Sarah for making this introduction. I uh, would not be able to do what I do without my network, uh, people being so generous with their introductions and uh, just people being so generous with their time and knowledge. My guests, thank you so much. Uh, so we have not a lot going on in Restaurant Unstoppable Network this week and next week. Uh, Honestly speaking, uh, we launched Restaurant Unstoppable's first ever course, a live course, I should say, um, in the network. I partnered with Rudy Mick, and we were doing a costing and profit course. And then this is all of Rudy's proprietary uh, knowledge, his methods. And the first lesson of the first course was this past Wednesday. It was really serving as an overview. So if you guys want to join us, this is a high touch, uh, like not your normal like masses where it's just a recording. Like this is high touch. You're going to get FaceTime with Rudy and and there's going to be handholding. So if you want to increase your profit by a minimum of 4%, then I highly recommend you come hang out in the network. Join this course. You will make your money back before the course is over. Um, that's what Rudy is saying. So I would believe him. He, he's a pretty honest dude. He doesn't just go making claims. <laughs> so I highly recommend you come hang out with us live and, and do this course. And uh, also next week on um, we are going to be in Chicago and then Philadelphia. So I'm going to be very busy traveling. Uh, so we're taking it easy in the network as far as volume goes. Uh, but we are still going strong. And uh, if you want to come connect with me when I'm in Philadelphia and in Chicago, please reach out. I'll be there from, uh, we'll be in Chicago on the 31st through that week. And then over the weekend, we're traveling to Philadelphia. I would love to connect with you guys. Uh, if you're interested in me, even, even coming on site as I'm doing these recordings, that's something I've been considering. If that's something you're interested in, let me know. I'll shoot you uh, my schedule. You guys can come join, not join the interviews, but at least like be there and witness them live. Uh, and then I've also have to let you guys know that live in the network this week, uh, we have the founder, I believe, of Restaurant 365 joining us to learn more about the history of Restaurant 365 and the benefits of Restaurant 365. It's an accounting platform that's been recommended countless times on the show. Uh, that pun was intended. And uh, I'm, I'm interested in learning more. So he'll be live in the network Tuesday at 2 o'clock if you want to be a part of that conversation. All right, that's it for today. Thank you guys so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. Peace out.